where we're headed, I actually have a lot of hope. Um, and that's not flimsy. I, I believe hope is a tool to keep giving us access to more solutions that are available to us. And I believe that human potential blows away all of what's happening right now. I really do. And I've had so many people challenge me on that and say, you know, Ben, like, it sounds great. It sounds poetic to say we have all this potential, but why don't I see it? And I said, well, that's the, that's the interesting thing about it. You have to believe in yourself before you start to see, and you have to actually put it into action. It's not just about sitting around believing. You actually have to try it out. Like if you're going to dance, a lot of people are like, oh, I can't dance. Like, have you tried? No, because I can't. It's just like, listen to yourself. You haven't even tried to explore your own potential because you simply convinced yourself you have none. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is filmmaker and musician, Ben Joseph Stewart. Hello everyone. Are you ready for a wild ride with Ben Stewart and I today as we discuss the prophecies in the amazing and shocking book, The Fourth Turning? What the cycles of history tell us about America's next rendezvous with destiny by William Strauss and Neil Howe? You may remember from my previous podcast with Ben Stewart that he is an exceptional documentary producer, producer of the now famous Psychedelica series on Gaia TV, a musician, investigative journalist, known expert on plant medicines, and more. Not long before we recorded this highly informative and sometimes shocking podcast, I heard Ben on Kyle Kingsbury's podcast talking about the cycles of time and the turnings, which are approximately 20-year cycles that repeat themselves in the typical lifespan of any human being in any nation or culture worldwide. In the book, The Fourth Turning, which was written in 1997, Strauss and Howe described the fourth turning as a time of crisis in which wars often start and lo and behold, one of their predictions for this period of time that we are in right now was, you guessed it, a viral pandemic. I have read the summary book of their book and listened to the entire audiobook, The Fourth Turning, and it is very, very informative. Their predictions for the time we are in are certainly hair-raising and based on reliable repetition of past cycles, which they explain in great detail and with great accuracy. Ben has researched the book and listened to every available audio podcast and watched every film clip he could find from William Strauss and Neil Howe to investigate their work and predictions. He has combined what he's learned with a deep study of all that has been and is likely to be going on as it links to the COVID pandemic and Great Reset being discussed widely today. Ben wanted me to mention to all of you that a lot of support from his research comes from the wise woman, Alison McDowell, and that you can all investigate and learn more at her website, which is wrenchinthegears.com, www.wrenchinthegears.com. Though this podcast can be intense and even shocking at times, I truly believe the devil you know is always better than the devil you don't know. We spend a fair bit of time sharing how we can all embrace the times we're in productively and contribute to creating viable solutions that are best for both human beings and the planet. I hope you enjoy my very potent conversation with Ben Stewart. And by the way, you can also learn much more about his findings on a regular basis on Ben's Waking Infinity News, which is available at his website, benjosephstewart.com. Enjoy Ben Stewart and a close-up look into our future. 
Hi, everybody. You know, people from around the world are constantly asking me where they can find organic foods and supplements that are actually organic, not just some fake impersonation, which is sadly so common in the marketplace today. My most common suggestion is go to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, where you can find a wide range of excellent nutritious products made from certified organic source materials. Organifi has superfood drinks that actually taste great, (laughs) unlike most, immune support products, excellent high-quality protein powders, digestive support, joint support, liver support, green juice, hormonal support, and menstrual ease nutrition formulated by a team of female herbologists for women and more. My family and I and a significant number of my clients and friends and students from around the world use and love Organifi products because they're nutritious, taste great, and unlike many products, you actually get what you pay for. Hallelujah! I love Organifi's high values and high quality products and they're excellent for athletes, children, and the whole family. There's no better investment than investing in your own health and well-being. And when it comes to investing in my health and the health of my family, I go to Organifi. If that's not enough to make you want to explore all the amazing products waiting for you at Organifi, I'd love to sweeten the deal for you by offering you a special Living 4D with Paul Check discount of 20% on any of Organifi's excellent certified organic, super clean, nutritious products by using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20 on checkout. That's Check 20, all caps, on checkout. I hope you enjoy Organifi as much as my family and I do. Hi, everybody. I know that you're all aware of the importance of vitamin C. There is a mountain of research on it, but not all C is created equally. I love Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex because it is the real deal, bioavailable. And I wanted you to hear right from Autumn Smith, founder of Paleo Valley, why their Essential C Complex is so unique and something you definitely want for your family and your children. Autumn, tell us about your Essential C Complex. Well, I was shocked to learn as a holistic nutritionist that 90%, over 90% of the vitamin C on the market is derived from genetically modified corn, and then it's processed with highly volatile acids. And so I knew I had to find a better way to get all of the powerful benefits of vitamin C. So what I did was I dove into the research and I found the three most vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet. That's unripe acerola cherry and camu camu and omla berry. And then I just packed them into capsules. And the benefits are amazing because you're not only getting vitamin C, but all of the other wonderful benefits that come from these amazing superfoods. So to get access to this complex, all you have to do is go to paleovalley.com and you can use the code CHECK15 at checkout. That's lowercase C-H-E-K 15 and you can save 15% off. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today we have the most exciting opportunity to revisit my buddy Ben Stewart, producer of Psychedelica and many amazing films, documentaries of various types, a musician, and many other things from mystic to uh, medicine man to to world traveler to ex-soldier. I mean, it's all right there. So Ben, lovely, lovely, lovely to have you back. Man, it's so good to be back with you, Paul. You're uh, you're a great mentor of mine, so I'm glad to have this conversation with you. Well, thanks. i glad I can support you and anybody any way I can. So I'm fortunate to be able to enjoy positive feedback from people that find what I share helps them. So thank you for that. Yeah, man. I uh I listened to your podcast with Kyle Kingsbury 
and when you guys were getting quite into the fourth turning and the book by William Strauss and Neil Howe, The Fourth Turning, I really, because I've studied the yugas in the past, it's part of the Self-Realization Fellowship training in yogic philosophy. Uh, I saw Greg Braden's show on uh, Missing Links, where he went through a sort of a, a, a nice graphic representation of exactly these types of cycles. And to me, it was very obvious. And so when I was hearing you guys talking about the fourth turning, which I hadn't read, I quickly ordered the audio book and got as far as I could. I've ordered the book, and but I was able to get my hands on this little book right here. Uh, can you see that? Yep. It's called uh, Summary of the Fourth Turning uh, by William Strauss and Neil Howe, Chapter Zoom, and, and it's I don't know. It don't even have page numbers on it, which is kind of funny, but I would imagine it's like a 40 or 50 page chapter review. And I, w I really wanted to talk to you about these things because you spent more time investigating them and you have your finger on the pulse of many different uh, aspects of what's going on in the world. So I think I'm about chapter four in the audio book and I read the entire summary so that I could kind of get a sense of where they're going. And I, I found the summary to be very, very helpful. And the book is very good too. I, I was very impressed with their uh, dialogue on myth and their discussion with Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung and Hero's Journey and archetypes. I thought, well, first of all, I've studied that so much that normally what people say is not very accurate, but I found that they were bullseye on, on that. So that was impressive. So I, I really wanted to spend some time with you today working through some of these concepts, hearing your thoughts and, and dialoguing on how some of these concepts are very useful for all of us to be aware of right now. Because I think when we get the weather forecast, you know, if, if, if it says it's a hundred percent chance of rain tomorrow and, uh, you know, you're going to a film shoot or something, uh, you might want to carry an umbrella. And, and though we know the weather isn't always accurate, it's consistent enough that carrying an umbrella is a good idea. So in this sense, I think it's really important for us to get the weather forecast because from what I could see from reading the book and the summary, these guys are pretty damn accurate. Yeah, man. They uh, <clears throat> for a book that was published in '97, so 1997, meaning they were writing it. I think I heard they started in '88, maybe '89 or something like that. Um, they began realizing that this cycle is just so tried and true. Um, one of the things I loved about the book was when they were making predictions. They they were very obviously like you know it could happen this way it could happen this way it could happen this way or this way but it's definitely going to happen and it's definitely going to happen within these parameters and they said uh, just for your audience those those who aren't aware the whole concept of the book the fourth turning is talking about the a greater seasonal cycle so they put it into winter spring summer autumn. But they're talking about 80 to 90 year cycles, which is what's called a, uh, a saculum. And the Etruscans, pre-Romans, even they coined it that because it's, it's a long lifespan. 
80 to 90 years. And so knowing this cycle and knowing the ins and outs of it is hard for any individual because most of us, we like, if we're lucky, we die around the same time that we were born into this kind of a cycle. So, um, but the fourth turning is the, when you turn from autumn into um, winter and winter is what they call a crisis period. So spring is an awakening, or I'm sorry, spring is a high, um, summer is an awakening, autumn is the unraveling and winter is the crisis period. And that's what we've kind of hit um, just now is the crisis period. But man, did they, did they get it right? And, you know, I think one of my favorite lines that I heard, it wasn't even in the book. It was on. So when I read the book, I was like, my goodness, I need to go deeper into this. So I went on to Spotify. I checked out every single podcast that talked about the fourth turning or had um, William Strauss or Neil Howe on their podcast. And one of them introduced them by saying, man, if history don't repeat, it surely does rhyme. And I love that. <laughs> Because it's never the same. It's never 100% the same. No. But they resemble one another. And I guess the, the main point I want to I wanna lead this whole conversation with is they did make a really nice point when they were talking about it mythologically. They said that when we think, and this is how societal philosophy really matters here and the way we construct our belief systems, because if we just believe time is linear the whole way, then a lot of the times it does actually become easier for us to be like, man, why was I born during this time period? Out of all the time periods, it feels almost like history is happening to you. It's impersonal, but when you're a part of a cycle, it feels more mythical. It feels more archetypal. And it actually, I noticed this even before they said this in the book, it makes me feel like there's a reason why I was born at this time. I was I was born under a certain constellation, as they call it. Um, I'm a millennial, so so they say those who are born during an unraveling they come of age only knowing the unraveling and the crisis, and that's that's me. So I would be considered a hero, somebody who takes up a charge, some kind of mission. But it does feel like when you look at life and history cyclically then it does feel like you're a part of something greater than you. You feel like you you almost feel the cosmos turning and you realize that all cycles have micro cycles and macro cycles, right? Even in music and when you hit a guitar string, there's those very fast high tones, but then there's those long, slow waves. Everything's fractal. So everything that spins is connected with something larger that spins. It's connected to something that's larger that spins. And it really makes you feel like I have a voice in this grand opera and all this, this turning and all this cycling of history. I do have a voice and I can't sit idly by. I just can't be a spectator of history anymore. Yeah, it's important. And you and I, in our phone conversation to, kind of dialogue and get a sense of where we wanted to go with our time together. We were looking at, for example, when you were born, what archetype you were in and what I was in. And, you know, you, you and I were having this realization that it's very accurate for both of us because I was born in 61, which we calculated makes me in the prophet archetype. So, uh, 61 was, 
you know, it, it was the end of the uh, baby boomers, the beginning of the 13ers, the 13th cycle of Americans in the seculum. And they call those Generation X. And uh, it's kind of funny because in my formula for consciousness, X plays a big part, which I, I won't go into here because it would sidetrack us a lot. But X in my formula is the question mark of what are you going to do with consciousness? Hmm. So my whole life has really been an exploration of what consciousness is and what are we doing with it? <laughs> and, and so, uh, having been a, a started many trends in my life, I've prophesized a lot of things, whether it be the use of Swiss balls, the development of free motion, cable machines or the integration of the holistic sciences into exercise, etc. So it's interesting how, as you're saying, these things are very real. They're very alive. And 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 you know, one of the most ancient sciences there is is astrology, which is really about the cycles of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the sciences, man, we have such an idea these days. We're told what science is. And I have a, you know, I even, I usually use a graphic and I don't know if I even held on to it of what science truly is, which is more or less a, it's an aspect of consciousness. So there's the science institution and that's what everyone focuses on. And it's the same as religion. You know, people say, you know, oh man, I can't stand religion. And I'm like, you probably mean religious institutions, which is what man uh, you know, humanity has done. So people in large groups, they use religious institutions for power. You use scientism and science institutions for power. The same thing. And so this is part of the four. Um, it's interesting. I, I never related this specifically to the four turnings of the seasons, but think of a, not uh, a circle per se. This is how I originally had it. Cause there's four pillars to society. And it's science, philosophy, religion, and art. And this goes back as far in history as you can go and as far across the globe as you can go. You won't find any civilization that didn't have science, philosophy, religion, and art. They may not 100% uh, be reflected in the same ways that we have them today, but every one of them has them. And I, I wondered, like, well, why is that? You know, you, you go way back, there, there was still science. Yes, it was more rudimentary than we may have had today. And in some cases, far more advanced. We just look at it as primitive. But science is to know. The word means to know. And a lot of the times, it's just bare, like bare naked observation of what is. And you're just gathering that, that you're witnessing that experience. But then once you witness something, even as a child, they come into this world and they do things like their, their hands are flailing all around, smacking things. And they're like, oh, that's the extension of my body. That's how far it goes. And that's what happens when I smack it on something. So they get feedback. So when you witness or observe a part of life, it doesn't just sit idly by. It turns itself into a philosophy. Well, what does this mean? How do I fit into this world? You know, what does this mean to me when I scream and cry and my, my parents 
give me a frowny face. But when I coo and caw and laugh, they give me a smiley face. What does that mean? So we instantly start working on our philosophy. And then that eventually turns to once you have a philosophy, that doesn't sit idly by. So that goes around the curve and goes into religion. And the word religion actually comes from the root word religare, which means to bind or to hold together. And think of Daniel uh, LaRusso and Mr. Miyagi on that cliffside using that wrapping tape to fix the bonsai, to make it whole again. In a way, religion, a lot of the times, is built around what do you devote yourself to? You commit to something. And you, so you take your philosophy and you, you believe something about it and you wish an outcome. So it's your, it's your devotion to your spiritual path. But then the final step, the emergent step after that is once you've committed to something, there's the actual expression of it. There's the you actually doing it. And then once you do that, that echoes out in the world. That's our art. So your art is all of your expressions, your conscious and subconscious expressions. But then once it goes out in the world, you get feedback. And once that feedback comes, it you witness the feedback of your own action, and that starts the cycle over again. But I always looked at it as a circle, and I was like, you know what? It's not a circle. It's a spiral because it keeps wrapping in on itself, and every time it cycles, it doesn't repeat 100%, but it surely rhymes because it goes back through that same cycle. And so to me, that's when I started realizing that you know, we everything we do does ripple out into the world. Every word we say, all of our beliefs, they show up on your posture, they show up in your facial expressions, your daily eating habits, they show up in you somehow. If people around you, they don't know exactly what you ate yesterday, but they could probably tell your habits, your movement habits, your dietary habits, whether you're a generally happy person, how you talk to yourself in your head. So these are all really important. And I think getting back to the fourth turning aspect of it, those who are born in the crisis period are called artists. And I find that really interesting because when you see this involution, the spiral gets tighter and tighter, things seem to happen quicker and quicker. And tell me that doesn't feel like history right now. Things yeah, it's, it's, it's intense, yeah. Accelerating and it's going faster and faster. And that's the tightening part of the crisis. So the crisis period feels like you're crunching and there's so much pressure. But after that, then even just the slightest, like think of, I don't, you know, think of a medicine journey, right? Where it gets to its crescendo and you don't know whether you can take anymore. Then it starts, <laughs> you know, it starts to loosen up. And once it starts to loosen up, even though the pressure is still there, the direction is this expansion. And so it instantly feels like you're high. Because you realize you got through the worst of it. Your heart is still pounding. The, all those chemicals are still coursing through you. But you feel like everything is expanding because you got past that tight pinch and now it's starting to spiral back out. And then when you get out to that crescendo on the outside, that's the awakening. Now you look back in history, the, this is the hippie generation. They were called the nomads. People born in this generation were considered nomads. And if you think about it, it's kind of these are the ones that just wandered. They they wanted to experience the world unfettered from any kind of you know shackles of government or anything like that. They pushed against the Vietnam War. And then right after that, you get into the millennials that come to, they basically come of age through the 80s and in the 90s. Just look at the music. It feels like an unraveling because Nirvana comes along and listen to those lyrics. 
listen to the grunge era lyrics, alternative music lyrics, Marilyn Manson, Nine Inch Nails, Tool, Rage Against the Machine. That sounds like a generation that's like, enough. We don't want anymore. The way this is going, we're done with it. That sounds like societal fabric is unraveling at that period. I'm really curious because I'm a musician to know what kind of music will start coming out through this crisis period that's brand new, that sets off the voice of a new generation. I'm actually really excited to hear what that might be. Yeah, I, I, I'm very interested in that too. Um, if I had to guess, I would suspect it's going to have shamanic undertones. I would suggest, I would suspect that it's going to have a rhythmic beat structure that is not only going to stabilize, but open people up. I agree. I actually, I already feel that coming. There's a lot of really good musicians that are, they're into plant medicine or they're into spirituality and they're finding a way to take devotional music and turn it more mainstream where it doesn't just feel like, you know, oh, well, that's just Kirtan music and that's just Christian music. And it's it's not so set in those old traditions. It's starting to mix and integrate with newer styles. And actually, I even feel as much as I do love some devotional music, I like a lot of the music that's coming out now. Trevor Hall, um, there's Ajit Kaur, um, there's Peya. There's a lot of people who are using those old devotional music tropes and putting them into modern styles and it's really making them more engaging and more accessible. So I think you might be onto something there. Well, I just, the reason I say that is because if you think of the experience of a shamanic journey, which we both have lots of experience with, most people have a, a pretty significant level of fear going into one because they're facing the unknown. And, you know, the ego cannot control the medicine, as you know. Once, once the medicine takes hold of you, it's as though you've had to drop the oars and you're going down a river and the rapids can get very big. There can be waterfalls, there can be black holes, wormholes, and, and you really, you know, you kind of just have to uh, completely become a student and a witness to it all. Because if you try to fight the rapids, you're just a fool. And so having conducted countless such healing ceremonies and doing uh, workshops with rock stacking, which can be very, very dangerous, what I do to stabilize people is I use drumming or chanting or anything that has a rhythmic structure that we can all do together to harmonize to each other, but for me as the shaman or leader or medicine man, I'm actually using the music to tap into the frequency of whoever I'm taking into ceremony so that even when I'm not looking at them, I'm aware internally of when they're becoming distorted. See, once I get Ben's frequency, we'll call that his harmonic, and I record that in my psyche. If I'm on the other side of the property, but all of a sudden I begin to feel nervous or chaotic energy, I just ask my soul, who is that? And the next thing you know, I'm having a vision of you in this example or whoever it is. 
point being is we're coming into as as we're going to get into the fourth turning which you know is is often coupled with war and destruction and and massive massive changes and it was one of the things that blew my mind in the book that was written in 97 as you've mentioned is that one of the things they predicted in the fourth turning was a viral epidemic and i'm like bang on dude here we are and 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 then we're seeing sort of the return of the you know almost a communist regime police state invisible jail so we're seeing what i call an autoimmune disorder it's as though the military industrial complex knows it can't afford to pick a fight with anybody because it'll wipe out everybody so now they're having to profitize by making us the enemy and our own citizens now become the perceived terrorist or threat and so the autoimmune disorder the the military representing our immune system is now turning in on itself and 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 so why i'm bringing this all up is because this is really the intensity of the shamanic journey we're all on the medicines you know we're 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 between the third and the fourth hour of a, of of several hits of lsd or or uh, some strong mushrooms or you know something along those lines and that's when you know that's when the wormholes begin to open up and that's also when people get scared to death but that's also when the use of the right lyrics and the right beat turns out to be very stabilizing and i've had many people say oh my god right when you started rattling i was really losing it and then all of a sudden i felt good again or Oh, I'm so glad you put that music on because I was losing it. And once I started listening to Hillary Stagg or Wah or Snatom Carr or whoever it might be, I calmed down again. So because the musicians, the artists, and the poets are usually the ones that bring in a new myth because they're the ones that are open enough to download it, I think that uh, those are the people that are going to actually create the music the art and the poetry that can get us through out of interest did you happen to listen to my podcast with ari hanavar the the Rumi expert no i did see that one in the description as i was looking through the uh the podcast i um i listened to a couple right around that um but i would love to hear what that conversation got into well you'd find it fantastic but the Part the reason I was asking if you listen to it is because she was in she was raised in Iran. She's from Iran and, and she was there. I think they had how many year war? A seven or an eight year war there between I think the Ayatollah Khomeini and and uh it might have been Saddam Hussein, I can't remember, but she describes how every minute of the day they never knew if they were gonna live or die. She said she at nighttime it was customary for her and her friends. She was like eight years old to go out on the top of the high rise apartment buildings where they lived. And they would see all the missiles flying through the air, both their missiles going at the enemy and the enemies flying right at them. And she said, she watched buildings just explode right in front of her. And she said that the people would be reciting Rumi and Hafiz and the mystical poets that they've always worshipped, and that was the only way they could survive it. And she said they would 
shout a line of poetry off the rooftops and people down on the streets would finish that line of poetry and they would go back and forth. And it was the only thing that carried them through the shock of it all. In fact, she said it was so intense that many young people, 14, 15, 16 years of age, had heart attacks and died because somebody had slammed a door and they thought that a bomb had hit and they just died from the shock of it. So the the point I'm driving at is, is that she was describing in the podcast how it was ultimately this poetry that anchored them and how people like Rumi who talked about, you know, the burning and, and shedding off all the stuff that's not real except for God would anchor themselves in these deeper truths. So I really think at this time, we really need to look to the poets, the artists, and the musicians, because I think they're capable of bringing the messages that are likely to bring us more into harmony with each other, whereas watching the news hour just disintegrates people. Mm. That's such a good point. Um, you know, you so you use the term harmony, and I think that's the best word to use. And you're also mentioning the the messages and the lessons that the world needs the most coming through certain people. And you know this as well as um, as well as I do, if not better, that it's the state that you allow yourself to be in that allows for you to be open to messages or closed yes. down, and you're just in your head. And, um, you know, I went through my, my whole show on Gaia, Limitless. I went through a whole episode where I talked about posture and saying that you're, we constantly think of intelligence emanating from and being central to the brain. And I'm like, well, if you look at the brain stem, all the same cranial nerves, they branch off and go to all your organs. And, you know, like we, our brain is the entire thing. And in a sense, you also have fascia. And that goes all the way out here. And then in a sense, your heart field moves outside of you and you can actually pick up, pick up aberrations from people outside of you. And then, you know, it's shown that your heart field extends um, most effectively three feet outside your body. Now imagine standing six feet away from somebody. You're just at the cutoff point where your fields aren't intermeshing with one another. And this, this is Heart Math Institute. You go on Google and see how far outside the body does the electromagnetic heart field extend, and it says roughly three feet. So now think of the social distancing orders. Um, without going down that rabbit hole, I think <clears throat> the whole thing about we're also in a society where we're sitting so much. We're more sedentary than we've ever been. This is why I really love your book, uh, How to you know Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. It's, it's really showing like there's a holistic aspect to our health and we can't just ignore one, one side of it. I've seen so many spiritualists that they forget about their diet, right? Or they, mm -hmm. you know, they forget about their body. They're, they're super in the head, they're super in the heart, but they're not in the body. And so I feel that those, all those disciplines need to be integrated. And the new shaman is also people like yourself and Rafe Kelly who does parkour in nature and does meditation and Tai Chi in nature and teaches people how to, you know, climb trees, to crawl through waterfalls, to endure cold water, um, to, to breathe in nature, to listen to nature. And also 
fit into this world that we have very much so today. And I kind of feel that you're right. The artists are typically the voice for the generation. They will be the ones who most accurately put the underlying, um, can't put my imagery, right. Imagery, sounds, tones, feeling of what's happening. And so when you said harmony, you're definitely right about that. And, um, I don't want to go too much into the science of it, but there's this psychedelic researcher. Actually, she she only researched psychedelics in reference to her main body of work. She does what's called um, connectome brain harmonics. And that's basically, instead of looking at neurological connections in your brain, it's looking at different brain hubs and how they emanate a frequency. And how different parts of the brain will emanate frequencies as well. And this will become a symphony of frequencies. But when they emanate frequencies, they always seek harmony with one another. Because if two of them are off, then it it actually becomes a physiological anxiety inside the body. It also blocks communication between the hemispheres. It does. Because you get dissonance. It does. And so the way that she said it is in people who are in gamma... So meditators who can get into gamma without it being an anxious state, so they can maintain theta and gamma at the same time, those are ones who are actually opening up the symphony. So in a sense, more harmonics are coming in, and they're actually tuning each other to one another. So they're actually, it's music, it's brain music. So this is Selen or Selene Atasoy, S-E-L-E-N, last name A-T-A-S-O-Y, Selene Atasoy connectome brain harmonics. And it's so incredible because she then studied people who took LSD and said that there was such a rapid expansion of the harmonic repertoire. And the harmonic repertoire is basically, it's the symphony. It's how complex the symphony in the brain is. And when the brain harmonic symphony becomes more complex or the repertoire opens up, you actually seem to have access to higher consciousness. So higher conscious faculties. States, yeah. Right? So if you think about it, what we could use, and this is my theory, what we could use in these times, especially when it's crunching, everyone out in the world is feeling like, man, the the world is falling apart. I've had people say because of my waking infinity news, um, they're like, Ben, you seem so uh, like optimistic and and confident about what's going on in the world you're either completely detached from reality (laughs) right yes (laughs) or you know something that we don't please please tell me please advise you know and i say listen you know the reason why i talk about some of the darker things that's happening in the world it's so people don't feel like i'm just completely disconnected from the reality of the situation. Yes, I see the crunch. Yes, I see the problems. However, I also believe in the Tao, you know, the the Tao Te Ching. In the in that book, basically what they're saying is when you try and control nature, like when you try and you see the world and you think, no, this ain't right. I need to fix it. I need to fix the outer appearance, and it needs to fit the way I want it to be rather than me match it. So now we're talking about harmonics again. I'm fighting what is because I want it to reflect something different to me. And so I even went on Gaia and I have a story about this. The, I did a, um, a whole talk on 5G, 
And um, it it became the number one rated show of all time. And then eventually, I I just found out today that Amazon took it down. Is that with George Norrie? Mm Mm-hmm. That's what George I watched that. Yeah, I watched that. You did a great job on that one. Thank you. And I had a lot of people angry about that because they were like, listen, (laughs) George asked, is 5G dangerous? And you said it could be. They're like, it no, it's not that it could be, it definitely is. And I said, no, it could be because we're looking at 5G the way it is right now. And I agree, there's glaring, tons of glaring issues. But here's here's what I mean by that. And oh, well, no, no, I'm sorry. When he said, is it dangerous? I said, it could be. That's, that's, is it dangerous? It ca- it can be. What makes it dangerous? When you think that you have no power over the external, uh, not even power over the external world, but you're powerless to an external threat. That's a perception. You believe the outside world is a threat to you. And so you hold the opposite side of that charge and you identify with the victim of the external perception that you have. Not reality. We're only talking about perception here. And then he said, is this bad? And I said, I don't think you can put it in terms of bad. I said, it definitely needs to be addressed. This is why I'm on your show addressing it. It definitely needs to be addressed. But bad is a term that we throw around all too often based upon, again, what we want to feel. So this is where the reason why I brought up harmonics is the outside world is singing a song to us. Now, it's a messenger, just like Wim Hof does his breathing technique to what? Decouple the pain protein. So when you go in cold water, it's not like it isn't cold anymore, but it decouples the pain protein. So you're not getting that specific message and it's not overwhelming you. Well, pain, what, what does that mean? Pain is a message. Pain is a teacher. It's a message bringer. So the outside world, it's set up in a certain way and it comes at us in a certain way and it mirrors our beliefs, our philosophies about what the world is. Am I safe? Am I not safe? And so a lot of the times we think I need to rage against the machine of the outside world rather than learning, you know about um, Aikido. And you know about, you know, different martial arts that say when somebody is throwing a punch at you, you don't stiffen up and try and block it. No, you absorb the energy of it, right? And it's the same thing when you're holding the gun. You don't hold it far away from your shoulder so it has more room to slow down before it hits your shoulder. No, you nudge it right up against the shoulder so you instantly, you you absorb that frequency. You absorb that shock. My whole point behind all of this is we, and I think the artists and the shamans have this message to bring to us. It's that we're looking at the outside world as a war that needs to be waged. They're wrong. We're right. We need to wage a war against it. I believe that it's it's definitely not something we need to turn our heads away from. It's not so neutral that we can just ignore it's actually so important that we pay attention to what's happening right now, getting back to the fourth turning. And we'll talk about you know what they said about the fourth turning and this specific fourth turning. I think because it's so serious what's actually happening, we actually need to come into a harmonic state where we are most efficient. In fear, we only have freeze, fight, flight, and the other F, right? And when we're creative, 
when we're creative, you have that repertoire where you have access to any and all nuanced solutions to the now. Why wouldn't you want access to all those solutions to the now? So then you're talking about martial arts. What is the best way if you're engaging in a, in a spar match or an actual fight? Tense up or stay parasympathetic. Exactly. Stay loose, stay adaptable, stay focused, and don't spend all your energy on freaking out about the situation. If you've learned anything about the law of manifestation and the law of attraction, you live in the state that you wish to bring in. So if you were adaptive, kind of like Conor McGregor was, even when he would lose, he was just loose. He'd be throwing like roundhouse kicks and stuff like that because he was loose and adaptive. And that's kind of how we need to be. We need to realize this isn't a war that we need to bang our heads against. Let's turn it into a dance. Even if they want to fight us, if we're dancing and they can't catch us and we're absorbing it and just taking their energy, uh, you know, using their energy as a way to propel us deeper into the moves we want to make, this is what I think we need to do more of. So when I'm seeing the crunch going on in the world, my long tangent is all about I'm trying to be the artist, or I am. I am. I am opening to being the artist that is bringing through a message of, yes, we need to face the problems of the world and we need to see them more as lessons to be learned and to engage with, not to bury our heads in the sand anymore, because that's what we've been doing for the longest time. We're in this nanny state, right? We're like, somebody's going to take care of this problem for me. I'm just going to stay back until somebody else solves this whole debacle for me. We don't have time for that anymore. You said it in our last conversation. We need all hands on deck. Yes. And I also tell people fear never makes a good seeing eye dog. You know, it's like I used to be a paratrooper and I've been through a lot of intense experiences in my life and uh, a lot of life threatening experiences. And I've found that the best thing you can do is to really just be present. If you're going to die, you're going to die meaning there's nothing you can do about it. It's like when I used to race motocross, it was intense. You know, I would go as fast as I could possibly fricking go without just flying off into the trees. And sometimes I did fly off into the trees and have many uh, hospital visits and concussions and broken bones to remind me of, of going across that edge. But the the thing that you learn racing a motorcycle is never let go of the handlebars until you absolutely have no choice or the bike's ripped away from you. The reason is, is because as long as you have your hands on that set of handlebars, you actually at any moment may be able to bring that thing back into control again. But a lot of people get scared, just let go of the handlebars. Well, now you're done. <laughs> No matter what, your chances of, of getting out of that one are zero. <laughs> you know, it's like if someone's coming at you head on in a car and you let go of the steering wheel, you can't swerve around them. So if the fear stops you from participating, you're in big trouble. And I think a healthy amount of fear, like, you know, when I was a fighter, I fought, I remember one of the fights I had was against the fourth ranked welterweight boxer in the world. So he was also my teammate. So I was very aware of how good the guy was. And, and here I am having to fight him for the championships of the A second airborne division. And I'm like, Holy shit, this is not, not, not my ideal ending to this tournament. But you know, the, the thing is, is that the fear 
initially was debilitating me. And at the end of the second round, my cornerman, Nathaniel Finch, who, who at that time was the U.S. national champion in, in amateur heavyweight boxing, he looked at me and Paul, he said, don't be afraid of him. I've seen you spar with this guy. You know you can handle him. You've got a choice right now. You've either got to get in the game and go take him out, or he's going to take you out. Everybody's watching. <laughs> so go no do it. And so what happened was is he anchored me back in the realization I've sparred with this guy 200 times, and sometimes I beat him up good. Sometimes he beats me up good. Sometimes we beat each other up good. But part of the shock was that, you know, there was like 5,000 people watching and my wife's there, my kids there, my teammates are there. But it was only after that kind of reboot that he gave me in the corner that I went back in and say, okay, I I have a choice. I'm either going to go for this thing to win or I'm going to get beat up because I got too afraid. And once I changed my mindset and put my mind on winning, not surviving, I, I put it to him really good. And I ended up losing in a draw, but the way it was going in the beginning, people were probably betting I wouldn't last the second round. And so the point is just to share a lesson from an intense combative situation with someone that's very, very skilled. And so if we look at the fact that what we're going through collectively can be scary, then that's a reality. But if we look at it from the fact that most of what's scaring us is our own projections as to what's going to happen or what is happening. Like, yes, it concerns me deeply that someone might try to force me to vaccinate my children or even myself with something I don't agree with because that's a loss of my bodily sovereignty, my, my constitutional rights. Yes, it concerns me that we're losing freedom of speech. But if I let myself get debilitated by that, then I can't access the artist, the mystic, the poet, the visionary. And I can't really be productive in thinking outside of the box. As Einstein said, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. So we really need to get out of the box and look at it and when we're in a situation like that, if we get out of the box together as much of us as we can, which is really what we're doing right now, and that's what you did with Kyle, and that's what you know, that's what the people like you and I that are capable of doing a shamanic journey and being present with it are. This life is a shamanic journey, birth is a shamanic journey, death is a shamanic journey, right? All of these things, just like he talks about in the turnings and in the seculum yeah these things repeat themselves but nobody knows what's going to happen well i could say the same thing Uh, lots of women have babies and even though they've had many babies they don't know what's going to happen at any time with the next one we all know we're going to die but we don't know when where and how we're going to die but if you think about oh my god i'm going to die and it stops you from living well you've already died You know, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I like what you say, and and you know, there's there is a healthy amount of fear. Fear is also a messenger, and I, I really, uh, I'm I'm big on you know taking a lot of my clients through this this practice of like let's get friendly 
with your fears and with the things that you would rather not look at because I, I, I don't know your story. I guarantee I know exactly where your greatest teacher is and it's right behind you facing your fear. That's where you will realize that your fears are the greatest teachers. And so there is a healthy amount of fear because that's what keeps us alive. And actually, we call it fear because we just look at the trajectory of it as an endless, well, that's the direction of fear and this is the direction of love. But a microdose of fear actually is what allows us to second guess certain preconceived notions. Wait, do I really got this match? If, if I go up there and I take a swing, do I really got it? You got to know whether you actually are going to execute. I noticed that, you know, I was training with Rafe Kelly and he put two lines in the sand and he was like, jump from this line and land on the other line perfectly. And I did it. And then he put two logs on the ground. He's like, jump from this log onto the other log. And I did it perfectly. And then he took me up into a tree and was like, jump from this branch to this branch. And it took me a lot longer to do it because that healthy amount of fear, knowing that, okay, the stakes are higher. If I don't land this, I fall 15 feet. That could be a death. That could be a lot of broken bones. It's definitely something that's not that I don't want to go through. So that healthy amount of fear allowed me to actually make sure that my body would execute. So the thing is, is the right amount of fear can activate your body, the wrong amount of fear, just like spices, you know, like spices, you you have your meal and then a tiny bit of spice. If you change the ratio, which a tiny bit of meal and a lot of spice, it's just obviously that doesn't work. So in relation, I think that what we're, what we're stepping into the, the most sophisticated way we can step into this fourth turning, which by the way, everybody, it started in 2008 with the the housing bubble and so and and the recession that is even the authors William Strauss and Neil Howe they you know I think at least one of them works in DC he I've listened to interviews of him afterwards and he says we thought it was going to start somewhere around 2005 give or take a few years and guess what it started you know towards the end of 2007 in 2008 and um basically the best way that we can move through this crisis period is by acknowledging first is it, we really got to acknowledge first we are not powerless right this isn't something that we are powerless to ask any big say, a big wave surfer that's a huge wave there's no way you can clobber it and fight it right but what can you do you can get up on your surfboard, ride it. it. You can, you can surf that wave. There's ways of harnessing massive amounts of energy. Now, how do you think the 1% harness these huge waves? Because I was actually just on another podcast earlier today. We talked a little bit about the fourth turning and he had mentioned that back around the same exact time that George Floyd uh, died and all the, the BLM protests were happening last year was the uh, a solar flare or uh, the max of a solar cycle. So we know that we are influenced by the moon. We know that we're influenced, you know, electromagnetically and therefore physiologically and emotionally by the sun. So how do you think the 1% harnesses all of that energy? It's through narrative. All you got to do, and I'm not 
I'm not saying this as I know exactly what happened last year, but what I am saying is just take a look at this. If there is such a thing as a solar flare, right, that it causes physiological, you know, biological changes in your body and you don't know what it is, you don't know why it's happening, then if somebody, especially the mainstream media is like, hey, this whole thing is happening. If you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling angry, this might be why. You know, so it gives you the externalization to be like, this is what you're upset about. Go out on the streets and express that. Oh, and by the way, here's this whole corporate, um, or I'm sorry, nonprofit organizational setting of the Black Lives uh, Matters movement, which I'm sorry to say it, but if you actually went to the website and you tracked where all those donations went to, they went to the Democratic National Party. Every candidate was white. So... I'm just saying. Oh my God, that's just incredible. And so what I'm saying is I'm not partisan, but that's that's kind of a weird thing. So this is what I mean. If you want to take a look at what the real movements are happening, how do the 1% surf these massive turnings, right? The turning into the fourth, the fourth turning or the winter crisis period that we're in right now. How do they harness it? Well, I can give you a bunch of ways, but I'll say that Catherine Austin fits found out that 34 out of the 37 protests that happened because of in 2020 through the the Black Lives Matters protests 34 out of the 37 of them happened within a very small vicinity around a Federal Reserve Bank and those Federal Reserve Banks experienced a bunch of destruction of small businesses around them and she said that when she started looking at it it looks like these Federal Reserve banks are buying up property right around it so they can build up the smart grid and put advanced technologies around their Federal Reserve Bank for pennies on the dollar. So again, I'm not making a, a straight one-to-one correlation here, but what I am saying is narrative drives, the, the mainstream media specifically drives the way we, the masses, think, oh, I'm upset because of this external thing. I'm going to behave in this way because of this external thing. And for the most part, if you're getting your information from the mainstream media and you don't look at alternative media or you don't listen to Paul's podcast and you don't, you know, go to my waking infinity news, you're not looking outside at outside narratives. Chances are you're being given the perfect way to behave, to fit into a box to keep this ship moving off the freaking cliff that it's moving off of. Yeah, you're being harvested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're getting harvested. You're you're you just bait you just took the bait. Yep. Yep. Yeah, the, one of the things that uh sorry, did you want to say something else? Well, I mean it's it's a huge can of worms, so I'll just I'll just leave a teaser here. What we're getting into past 5G is 6G. And the plans for 6G aren't 10 years away. They're probably three to four years away. And what 6G is going to bring in is what's called digital twinning. And that means that we have a digital avatar, probably hundreds of them, to be perfectly honest, in a database. And big data has so much data on us that they probably have more data points on us than we could ever remember or any of our family members could remember. Exact times that we went to certain places, talk to certain people. When we go to the bathroom, our phones know when we poop. Our phones know all of our cycles probably better than we do. So we have a digital twin 
And there's this thing called the sentient world simulation. And it is literally a digital mirror of this world, but it's completely digitized. All the data points are there. It's connected to the smart grid, all the internet of things, eventually to the internet of bodies, harvesting our uh, biometric data sent to the cloud, sent to the sentient world simulation. And 6G brings in our digital twins And then supercomputers run through simulations of what is Ben Stewart going to do tomorrow if we send past his Instagram feed, which we we know he looks at, this kind of information. I guarantee you, because they've been doing this in the past, that Ben is going to either purchase this, or he's going to make a post about this, or he's going to shut it off and put his phone down and go away. How do we use those predictions to steer him to do what we want him to do? And this is you were, when you said being harvested, all of our data is being harvested. It's being pumped through digital simulations uh, and in it's there to make predictions on what we will do and what kind of lives we will lead. And this is all connected to a great economic upheaval, which is the fourth turning's major goal. It's called the Great Reset. It's, it's part of the fourth industrial revolution, and it's the shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, where major hedge funding corporations like Blackstone, BlackRock, and I'll, I can get into that ne- name later, basically bet on what kind of lives we will lead. Because we know that the stock market, you can bet against companies and make money. You can do put options, which is basically super safe. That's how uh, Warren Buffett made his money. It's turned into an entire economy where labor and resources aren't making money. Money is making money. Speculation is making money. And speculation, I'll just leave it at this. When I mentioned BlackRock and Blackstone, these major, huge, huge investment firms, I looked at that name and I was like, why is there so much? There's Blackwater, which is their private military, which is now Academy. There's Blackrock, there's Blackstone. Why all of that? I went back into looking at John D with his scrying mirrors, obsidian mirrors that were plundered from the, the Cortez raid down in uh, you know, the, the Aztecs. And they use this scrying mirror. It's a Blackstone obsidian. And there's one that's also in that building at Mecca. It's in the eastern corner of the building at Mecca, and all these buildings of Blackstone and Black Rock are in New York. And the Black Rock or the Black Mirror is also called the Speculum, which is exactly the same word as speculation. It, or it comes from spacer, the, the Latin word spacer. And so speculum and speculation, it has to do with what you focus your attention on. You're speculating. You're looking at something through a lens, like a telescope, a microscope, or some kind of mirror, like a phone, you know, and you're speculating on something. And it's not resources. It's not labor that's making money. It's money invested until the risk can be offset, and then it makes its money. And there's something occult happening here. That's all I'm going to leave that on. There's something occult happening with the fourth industrial revolution and the great reset and how it's turning the, our entire economy globally from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. Well, and, and, and so the word occult means hidden. Is that how you're using it? Yeah, it's, it's hidden. And it's, it's in the same vein as when you say esoteric. And it's um, so occult being hidden, which there's no problem with occult. All mystery schools are occult. 
Um, but when I'm saying occult, that we're not seeing that this isn't, we said this earlier when we were talking about science. Um, Ronald Reagan had an astrologer to know when he should give his speeches and what kinds of wording he would give in his speeches. I guarantee you just about every president and major political leader has had some kind of astrologer to follow cycles of time to know exactly when to give a certain speech and what it should be impregnated with. And so when I say occult, I really feel that what's happening here, it looks like it's just speculation, like it's just mathematical equations that's leading to some of these decisions. But I feel that there's something more religious happening underneath. And the religious side is what's hidden because we know that religious powers in the ancient world were taken over by colleges or collages of wealthier merchants that became the science class, the scientist class. And they started their universities and that's where all of our science is coming from now. And that's where all of these major hedge funders, not all of them, but a lot of them fund these laboratories. DARPA is the civilian side of the Pentagon, which comes up with ideas and they outsource it to private laboratories or these universities. So when I say this, I'm not saying anything wrong about the universities. There's nothing bad about it. But what I am saying is what's happening here with this Great Reset is definitely there's a religious side to it. There's an occult religious side to it. And there's more happening in specific time periods. And I think maybe even on specific places on planet Earth than we, the masses here through mainstream media. So I'm curious who do you feel is steering this or do you feel that this is something coming from the stars and we're just acting it out without realizing it? Yes to both. Um, so it's, it's, there's a cycle like the wave is coming, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's just how the ocean flows. The wave is coming. It's big. It's really big this time. Probably the biggest wave we've seen in history unless there were ancient wars that we don't know about today that were bigger. And I'm not saying a war is coming. What I am saying is the energy of what's swelling right now is huge. No one person or one family or one group has made that wave happen. It's just the turning of the cycles. I think this is collectively, it's driven from something a lot higher. So this is why I always have confidence about what's happening is even beyond the 1% that I believe is steering the narrative around what's happening. So there are people who are steering it. There are groups that are steering what's happening. And if you would like me to say specifically who I believe they are, because I try not to point specific fingers, but I, you know, I, I can say that there is probably a reason for me to point out certain groups that seem to be at the forefront of all the economic changes that have been leading up to this point for the past 10, 15, even 20 years and where it's headed. And these are the people who gather at Davos in Switzerland. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know about Davos. I want you to say whatever spirit wants to put through you. I'm not here to sugarcoat, hide, dance around anything. I'm a straight flying fucking arrow when it comes to this shit. <laughs> I know you are, man. I know you are. So spirit moves me to to first say that all is, all is done and all is said in love. 
Everything that I am here to do is not to uh, chastise, punish, or demonize, or even belittle any other individual, but it's ideology. And when there's a sickness and somebody's sick and they can truly pass that sickness on to others or harm others because of their you know, derangements or sickness, I have to mention it. And so I'm not so worried about the current pandemic because I think the real pandemic that's happening is more or less the, the perception of the masses based upon the narrative of the few. So I'm going to say that those I agree. those who gather at Davos in what is called the World Economic Forum, I've seen I've seen a lot of amazing people in the World Economic Forum. Um, but what I must say is, for the most part, I believe that the climate is changing, but I believe the narrative has been hijacked, and some of the science has been hijacked to make it look like who's to blame is all of us. It's my fault for driving a car. It's it's you know some farmer's fault for having cows, right? And whereas we could we can adjust the infrastructure of all this and the supply chains to make so much more sense of it, but I believe in a lot of what the problem is. We do have an economic uh, I'm sorry, an ecological problem that we're facing, but who's driving the narrative of Agenda 21, which is now Agenda 2020 or Agenda 2030, which is also sustainable development, basically saying that we need to pack people into smart cities and let nature revive itself. So we can't touch nature anymore. And if you look at a Rockefeller study that came out around 2010, they put a bunch of stories in in motion that said things like, Okay, there's this one where a little girl is walking through nature and she comes and she sees a beautiful, pristine river. And it's so clean and pure and she really wants to dip her toe in it. But then she stops because she realizes that it's against the law now. You can't because we would dirty up pure nature with our humanness. And this is, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but basically this was an idea of where we would go to allow nature to come back. So this is part of the sentient world simulation where in the future you can go to the store by putting on goggles and you have haptic suits and you can grab stuff off the shelf and you're literally controlling a bot to grab stuff off of a physical shelf, put it in a basket, it'll get taken to a drone that'll ship it to you via Amazon, right? You don't have to go to Yellowstone anymore. You can go to the virtual Yellowstone and man, you're going to see you know, old faithful going off for sure. You know, you're going to see bison for sure. You're going to see, you know, all these animals for sure. It's going to be great. It's going to be better than nature. And this is kind of where the whole thing is kind of being pushed. So when you said who's steering it, I always look at, this is no dig at Klaus Schwab, but Klaus Schwab has this idea. He wrote the book, The Great Reset. How do we use the current pandemic as an excuse to push us into this greater idea called the Great Reset. We need to move from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. So I'll just explain that real quick. Share, yeah, please do. Shareholder capitalism is where I'm a shareholder of a company. I put money in. I either put in actual equity or sweat equity. So we are the ones who take all the risk. So we should be the ones that actually get some of the get the most amount of the benefit back. 
which makes sense. And yes, there are downsides to that. But then there's stakeholder capitalism, where nature is a stakeholder. Other businesses are stakeholders that couldn't get their hands on the same resources. The earth is a stakeholder. And this is this actually makes a lot of sense until you dig into how is it going to be put forth to the people. Exactly what I said. It's the Agenda 21 protocols of pushing people into megacities, monitoring them from all these satellites that are going into outer space using geofencing. And geofencing is, is if you go past a certain border and you're not allowed to, your phone shuts down, Somebody, so you know, the police forces alarms go off and they come and they monitor you from outer space. They come and pick you up and they say, I'm sorry, you can't be here. Nature is, is, is closed off. Sounds a very lot like Hunger Games in many ways. Uh, did you see the, uh, did you see Lady Gaga at the, um, inauguration? No, I don't watch stuff like that, but what happened? Yeah, I try not to, but uh, I was I was watching. And Lady Gaga drives me fucking crazy too. Yeah, well, um, to have Lady Gaga open be the opening act for the for the next president was kind of interesting. But I will say, Lady Gaga came out dressed exactly, almost to the freaking T, like that woman in the Hunger Games that has all that makeup on and says, let the hunger games now begin or whatever she oh, says. Yeah. That's, that's uh, too prophetic, man. Yeah. And so, so again, like, you know, a lot of this can seem very grim and very dark. So I'll just say there are a lot of names I can point to that are key players in where the economy is headed, which is basically a trace and track technological technocratically owned governing system that is global, meaning if there's pay for success financing, which basically means how do we, you know, there's billions of dollars a year that are lost on people who have asthma and they can't make it to work. So how do we intervene in at their home and in a sense, send something into their home to monitor whether their air is clean enough or monitor how they're behaving, maybe if they're eating the right foods, all that kind of stuff to intervene to make sure they can make it to work on time. Sounds great. And, you know, another thing it sounds like is how do we get more technology into the home to trace and track people? So it's that double-edged sword. Here's another one. Out of the World Economic Forum, the whole reskilling thing. We have to reskill people because gone are the days where you can have a job and it'll last 30 years. No, jobs are, you're going to need to probably be in a new job every three to five years, unless you're very, very lucky or have great aptitude and you are the innovator of, of new jobs. So there's this World Economic Forum called the Reskilling Program. Ivanka Trump, as well as, uh, you know, um, Benioff, I think is Mike Benioff, um, they were speaking together on the reskilling program. So this is bipartisan. This is across the left and the right. It's the wealthy that are talking about reskilling. And they're like, we need to empower women. How do we empower women? We need to get them into the workforce. Well, that sounds great when you look at it on the face of it, but what does that mean? What does the implication mean? We need to get them newer technology. We need to get them connected to the internet of bodies and we need to get them on the blockchain so we can harvest more data from them. Why? Because big data is bigger than big oil. So I I didn't even want to go this technological and this into the weeds of the issue, but really this is what we are facing. 
when when we look into the old days where you can just say, you know what, screw it, I'm going to quit my job for a year because I've made enough money. I'm just going to live out of my van. I'm going to go to some park and I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to sightsee and, and park hop. Okay, do you have your vaccine passport? Do you have your health pass to show that you're you're not um, going to infect anybody else? Uh, you make sure you bring your your phone along in case you know we need to um, monitor or tokenize whether you're eating correctly. And this is out of Imperial College London. It's called DNA nudge, and it means we need to get people to eat according to their DNA. Sounds great, but like, what is the basis of eugenics? Like that's pretty yeah. much that's that's pretty much it when you look at it. So we're talking about the ultimate speculation, the observation of every nuance of who we are by people that we are not allowed to see. Behind the data aggregators are people who are using these major AI algorithms, and they know everything about us. We know nothing about them. I think that's a conflict of, of interest. And so that's why I speak about these things, because I think that we, this is what we're heading towards. So in the fourth turning, when it said this coming fourth turning will start around 2008, it's going to end around 2028 because it's never, a fourth turning is never shorter than 15 years, never longer than 20. So the climax is going to happen somewhere around 2025-ish. Right. And then it'll start resolving by 2028 and we'll have a brand new system. Either the United States will be a third world country or we will be the victors or there's going to be a completely different global rule, governing system, economic system, societal structure. And in a way, it's already being talked about as the Great Reset, the fourth industrial revolution. Hello, everybody. I don't know if you're aware, but there is a tremendous amount of confusion about stretching amongst athletes, therapists, and people in general. For example, here are some misconceptions that result in inefficient, ineffective stretching, or may even set you up for injury. A. You should stretch all the muscles in your body in a stretching session. This concept ignores the principle of balance. Think of a bicycle wheel that's out of balance. If you loosen all the spokes, will you get a balanced wheel? Everyone should stretch. Though stretching in general is good for people, there are many people with hypermobile joints. Stretching the muscles crossing such joints increases hypermobility, facilitating joint dysfunction, inflammation, degenerative changes, and pain. If you don't stretch hard enough, you won't get good results. This misconception is common amongst martial artists and unskilled teachers and practitioners of yoga. The truth is that you should consider a tight muscle like a crying baby and move into the stretch gently. Coupling stretching actions with conscious breathing actually enhances short and long-term benefits and long-term range of motion changes. Another common misconception is that you should do a good stretch before an athletic event to get the best results. Though this is a true concept, the problem is that most athletes use static stretching or long hold stretches to loosen tight muscles before athletic events. This, as I show in my scientific stretching program, results in a lot of muscle injuries. This is one of the most common reasons sprinters tear hamstring muscles, and in the course, I show you why this happens. The truth is, even when people have a solid understanding of the physical side of stretching, it's still only a mechanical process. The human body is much more complex than that. Mechanical approaches to stretching don't offer the true depth and power of stretching scientifically. 
It is well known in many healing arts and well described in books like Stanley Kelman's Emotional Anatomy that muscles, joints, and connective tissue all respond to one's thoughts, feelings, and emotions. This is clearly defined when we study the anatomy of yoga and the chakra system. Each part, be it internal or external, is linked to an associated chakra and corresponding mental-emotional challenges that are unresolved in the individual. Tight muscles often result from such energies being stored in the body. In scientific stretching, not only do I show you how to read the body from many perspectives, I give comprehensive explanations on this process and tips for using stretching, breathing, pressure release, and awareness so anyone can heal and restore emotional and mental balance to their body-mind as part of a holistic approach. Learning to stretch properly gives you a lot of information that can help you at every level of your being. For trainers, coaches, and therapists of any type, the information I share can be applied and greatly increase the effectiveness of one's therapeutic approach. Getting great results is always great for business. My new course, Scientific Stretching, will teach you not only the best way to stretch and improve your health and performance physically, but will help you see and realize the deeper mental, emotional, and spiritual benefits of stretching as well. One of the real benefits of the teachings I share is that you learn the language of the body and realize that it's always talking to you, giving you tips, and making suggestions as to where change is needed, be it your exercise program, stretching program, diet and lifestyle, your relationships, or even your overall disposition. In my new scientific stretching course, you will learn what stretching offers us for achieving health and well-being. My 1234 model of stretching. Stretching assessments for targeted stretching, including what types of stretching work best in different situations. The pressure release method for improving mobility and flow. The mental-emotional relationships to body restriction. The fascia-water relationship. And much, much more. As with all the courses in my scientific e-learning series, this course is extremely comprehensive and will give you a perspective on stretching that will help you and your clients see tremendous long-term results. For professionals using stretching as part of their practice, scientific stretching will give you the kind of advantage a calculator would have given you in math class before anyone else had one. Scientific stretching includes 11 videos with over 8 hours of education plus a PDF manual to help you follow along. I've developed these techniques in the 37 years of my clinical practice working with all sorts from all sports, so it has been time-tested over a lot of years. My clinical approach to stretching will support balancing your body, reduce injury, speed healing, free trapped emotions, help you read your body and maintain a healthy dialogue with it, differentiate and learn to use pre-event, post-event maintenance and corrective stretching approaches effectively, and much, much more. Get started now at checkinstitute.com forward slash stretching. That's C-H-E-K institute.com forward slash stretching. Hi, everybody. I've looked into magnesium supplements in my many years as a therapist and found, unfortunately, most of them are junk. Until the day Wade Lightheart handed me his magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizer's which is a very, very specialized product that they did a lot of research on. Wade, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about what makes Magnesium Breakthrough so unique and so potent. Well, number one is that we realized that different types of magnesium are absorbed by different parts of the body. So we tested virtually every magnesium product there was on the market, and it came down to seven different ones that produced the best aspects or best effects over the broadest amount of people. We combine them without any weird excipients or, you know, some of the chemical agents that other companies use. We don't use any of that stuff. And we combined it with humic and fulvic acid as well as B6 to make sure that it's absorbed and utilized by the body. That's excellent. 
I really love it because one of the things I love about all your products is I can actually turn people on to them. They buy them. And I've never had a single person say to me, those products don't work. Everybody that I know has continued to buy Bioptimizer's products to enhance their life. Where can people get it? And what's their discount? Just go to www.magbreakthrough.com slash living 40 and put in your coupon code Paul 10 and you get a 10% discount. And of course, everything has a hundred percent money back guarantee. You can't get better than that. Enjoy. Did you know that symbiotica means harmony? And you're really likely to enjoy my podcast with Sherveen Jaffaria, the founder of symbiotica. Symbiotic is an amazing company that makes excellent products to aid healing, enhance longevity, and improve performance at all levels of your being, from your spiritual practices to your athletic endeavors. I highly recommend you go to symbiotica.com and check out their top-notch organically sourced products that include excellent tasting supplements like their Synergy Vitamin B12, which elevates energy naturally, to their Shilaj minerals, which help you better regulate your hormonal system. Their biocharge-activated coconut charcoal is an excellent detox support and removes toxins and poisons from the body quickly and non-invasively. Their organic longevity formula is one of my friends and students' favorites. They rave about it. I really enjoy their Regenesis liposomal glutathione for its amazing antioxidant powers, which is really helpful for anyone that enjoys vaporizing tobacco and herbs like I do. They also have great immune support products, water filtration options for drinking and showering, and some cool clothing and more. When you go to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com and use your Living 4D discount code, which is capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15 on checkout, you get 15% off anything they sell and you won't be disappointed. Enjoy Symbiotica. Yeah, a few things that came up to me that I that I want to share with you before we move on with some of the other things in our outline. One, um, I saw uh, a couple of times David Wilcock showed NASA photographs showing the temperatures of every planet in our planetary chain is heating up. So he was saying that it's it's false to to think that we're just doing it through the the things that are commonly attributed to it, such as burning fossil fuels and cow farts, farming, and yeah, all all that stuff. I, I believe I've studied it too much to not believe that we are definitely having an impact with those things. I mean, all you got to do is look at how much we've changed since the industrial revolution. And, you know, if you watched the documentary series called 500 Nations by Kevin Costner, have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. Oh, it's really good. But what what he showed is that even hundreds of years ago, that natives hunted and fished out and completely uh, devastated areas in nature, uh, that when we were burning firewood, that we were polluting the atmosphere severely to the point that sometimes areas could not get sun. There was so much gray soot in the air from burning firewood. So if you, if you, my point is Kevin Costner shows how quickly a number of human beings can overtax any region of the environment. And, and when you then say, okay, now move fast forward a few hundred years to now and you know based on the numbers for example they found tribal societies didn't function well if they got above about 55 people 
because it was just too much resources they had to gather per per unit of area anywhere they went. And and this is why armies used to have to carry tons and tons of food with them because they couldn't trust that nature could feed them. So my my point in this regard is that there's no question we are accelerating the greenhouse effect, but I think that when you see NASA data showing that Venus is heating up, Mars is heating up, Jupiter is heating up, then you have to say, okay, there's something going on on a much bigger scale, and the Earth is also heating up. And I think that ties into some of these larger cycles that that we're not talking about that would really be more along with astronomical cycles, which could be correlated with astrological cycles if someone had enough data to actually put those two side by side and do what the what the fourth turning has done and say, okay, let's look back at history. Um, and, and the electric universe group does this a lot. They've, they've used computer simulations to go back and show that, uh, a lot of the things that are described in the Bible are astrological events and that the planetary relationships were a lot different than significantly different than, and they even proposed that we may have had two suns at, at, at a given time. So there's a, the, there's a lot there. So, I personally think that um, there is multiple factors that most of us just aren't aware of because a lot of people just don't do enough research or study. So they're they're sort of just flying by the seat of their ignorance and calling it fact, which is always a, a dangerous thing to do. The other comment I wanted to make is that, <laughs> you know, I'm listening to your description of all of this very intently and and some of these things like we want to empower women and we want to protect nature and we want to make sure you don't take a virus and, and, and poison nature coming from these people. I have a very, very hard time digesting that because in my lifetime of 60 years this summer, I have seen nothing in all my research into all of these things, such as the Bilderberg group the so-called Illuminati, the Rothschilds, Westinghouse. You study the life of Nikola Tesla, see how they raped him of his a capacity for wireless transmission so they could keep selling copper and fossil fuels. All the people that have been executed disappeared off the face of the math, map with suicide notes and their family said, not freaking possible. This is some kind of a cover-up because they invented... Uh, free energy technologies or cures for cancer that the medical system did not want to get out. You can look at the story of Harry Hoxie and how the AMA threatened to put him out of business if he wouldn't sell his cure for cancer to them, which they had no intention of using. My point is, is that the, the, the global elite, in my observation, are very much in the scientific materialist mindset where they do not see the world as a living organism. They don't see it as anything spiritual. They see it as a resource. They're very much in the Darwinian survival of the fittest. Whoever can claim it and control it first is the winner. Whenever I start hearing anything about their legitimate concern for us or nature, I, I personally smell a serious smokescreen because history, as we've been talking about, has a lot of truth to share. And unless they've all done several hits of DMT and found God, I think that we've got a much different issue on our hands 
And I've learned one thing, never trust politicians or the global elite. No. Trusting Bill Gates as a philanthropist is a very bad idea. Yeah, and uh, honestly, you don't you need look no further than really taking a look at where these mega wealthy philanthropists put their money. They're usually when you really take a look at it, it's usually straight to their cronies as tax write-offs and a lot of the times they're in cahoots with the same mission. It's just funneling money into different hands. And you turned me on to that book by Vandana Shiva called Oneness Versus the 1%. And, you know, she said something very, very accurate in there where she was just like, listen, everything is turned into data now. And we, and we often confuse because, you know, it is often put to us that data equals knowledge. And data processing equals intelligence. And she's like, that's not true. And no, it isn't. we, because we keep looking at these terms that are given to us, like with more data and more measurement, you get better knowledge. And if you get better at measuring data, then you get better at predicting the future. Look, we've done it. We've figured out what intelligence is. No, you've made a, you've made a closed loop system that can that can take in materials and pump it out in certain ways. And if you get everybody looking at it, then it's like, oh, well, this is, this is reality. It, it, it completely fits into this kind of reality. Everything that, you know, all the data you pump through it, it can predict everything that I'm seeing perfectly. Why? Because everything that I'm seeing is some kind of, um, emanation. Data they've generated. Exactly. It's an emanation (laughs) of that kind of data they're just creating a mirror. Right. And well, and th- this is where I actually believe, I do believe you're right where they are fundamentalists, reductionists, materialists. I also believe that at the highest level, I'm going to go out on a limb. I- I'm going to say there are actually priesthoods at the very top that they they push this as what they believe to get everybody believing it, Right. And to get us all to kind of fit into this very materialist Darwinian view of who and what we are to help us feel how insignificant we are, right? I'm just one out of 7 billion people. How insignificant is that? And and a lot of us, we feel that way. Yeah, I'm just a tiny little speck on a huge, you know, like on a huge dot inside of an even huger universe. How insignificant am I? And at the end of the day, it's so disempowering, but I actually think at the top, they're not reductionist. I think they're closer to real magicians and sorcerers at the very top. And I think they understand cycles of time, but we're, we're not privy to the most accurate, and I wouldn't even call it information. But as I said, like, is data processing intelligence? No. But if we were always told that one plus one equals two, and this is how you arrive at the right answer is doing metrics and math, where does creativity live? Oh, well, don't worry about that. We've, we've already taken uh, art out of schools. You know, we're changing the educational system and we call it education. They took school out of school. <laughs> well, education, do you know what the original term means? Uh, at one point I did, but go ahead and tell me. Well, even uh, Plato was saying education is drawing forth the innate intelligence within somebody. 
So think think of a child. You you find their unique intelligence and you draw it out of them. Their unique brilliance. What is our genius? Right. What does our educational system do? It's not education. Squashes it. (laughs) It's programming. It's shoving information in. It's shoving in programs. You do math this way. You look at the world in geography this way. You look at anthropology this way. You look at all these subjects this way. And guess what? If you want to do something with your life, you're going to fit into this higher education school or this kind of a workforce. You grind the gears of reality as we put forth and you're a good citizen. You figured it out. You know, this is how you become a good human. And we are so locked into this indoctrination program. We've been programmed, not educated. We've been programmed and we're so locked into it that we've forgotten that there's intelligence that lives outside of it. How many times in school do we learn how to grow food? put our hands in the earth. How many times in school do we actually learn this is what intuition is? And here's how you can tell the difference between intuition, instinct, and your just passing thoughts. How many times do we hear about those those kinds of um, intelligence, intuition, and instinct? If you're in the Czech Institute regularly. <laughs> That's why we, I mean, we should get Czech Institute being a little bit more institutionalized, right? <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I know you are. I know you are. And that's what this whole mission is about. And you know what? I'm going to take a breath and I'm going to say where we're headed. I actually have a lot of hope. Um, and that's not flimsy. I, I believe hope is a tool to keep giving us access to more solutions that are available to us. And I believe that human potential blows away all of what's happening right now. I really do. And I've had so many people challenge me on that and say, you know, Ben, like, it sounds great. It sounds poetic to say we have all this potential, but why don't I see it? And I said, well, that's the that's the interesting thing about it. You have to believe in yourself before you start to see, and you have to actually put it into action. It's not just about sitting around believing. You actually have to try it out. Like, if you're going to dance. A lot of people are like, oh, I can't dance. Like, have you tried? No, because I can't. It's just like, listen to yourself. You haven't even tried to explore your own potential because you simply convinced yourself you have none. I, I say to people like that, if you don't think you can dance, put your finger on your carotid artery and your other hand over your heart and pay close attention to what's keeping you alive. It's a dance. It's a constant dance. And if you really want to figure out where that's coming from, then meditate on deeply on what's breathing you and making your heart beat. Because you've been taught it's a bunch of chemicals in your body, but you forgot that something initiated that whole movement. Something organized that whole movement. And that is where the real education is. You know, one of the things I tell my students that's very appropriate to our conversation, Mark Twain said, never let your schooling get in the way of your education. And I think that we need to, uh, my friend Cal Callahan's podcast is titled Unlearn. And he gave me a couple of nice t-shirts and sweaters and I wear them proudly because we really actually need to unlearn if we're going to solve the problem we're in, because the problem that we're facing right now is a product of the programming at at a very big scale. And we're not going to use the same programming to deprogramming. That's like a watch trying to figure its maker out. We got to climb out of the watch and say, okay, we need to disassemble this thing and produce something that tells us the truth, not what we are, uh, what they want us to hear or what some corporation wants us to hear. 
and and you know i i'm 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 a realist like some people get upset at me because of the things i say about the fact that you know we're about to collapse nature and we've got bigger problems in covid and it's just all just a smoke screen but you know if you if you, like even in the fourth turning they talked a lot about how we draw i'm paraphrasing but we 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 draw these wars to create a shift to create an awakening to keep it's like tilling the garden right you go out you till the soil it, it, it it's traumatic at the time but it actually helps the soil to uh revive itself to aerate itself and you can then implant fertilizers you can green manure you can plow uh clover under the ground to remineralize and nutrient make soil more nutrient dense so i i think that you know steiner talked a lot a long time ago about what he called super saturation and he he spoke about the dangers of all the processed food and all these caught everything so highly concentrated and charged up he described how every time you go further than the natural food itself so you start adding sugar for example you upregulate the nervous system and the senses so that they actually nothing tastes sweet anymore unless it's got two teaspoons of sugar but then that flatlines and you need four teaspoons and i think what's happened is we have actually pushed supersaturation to the very edge of the viability of our survival systems we you know i show my my students in class when you're doing a health appraisal questionnaire which looks at I believe uh, 29 overall body systems, if you include the female systems, 19, I think, for a male. But I point out to my students, like, okay, how many of you had 10 or more scores in the high level, which is high stress? And almost 90% of the class goes up. And of course, they're in class to learn how to teach people to get healthy. I say, okay, I've got a question for you. Look at the names of all those systems that you just scored high on. Who wants to? Share, uh, hormonal system, thyroid, high glycemic, low glycemic, liver, nervous system. Okay, good. Now, guess what all those systems are? Those are autonomically regulated physiological systems that are designed to keep you alive. And they're autonomically regulated because you don't even have a fraction of the conscious bandwidth it takes to manage 30 billion billion biochemical reactions a second. What's the point? The point is, if those systems are high, it means you are damaging yourself faster than your body's natural healing intelligence can repair you. So don't think it's just a matter of taking a pill to lower that. You've got to look very, very carefully at what food you're eating, where you're buying it from, how it's farmed, what the impact is on the earth, the air you're breathing, the water you're drinking. If you don't look at all those things and you think you just take a pill, then you're trying to use a BB gun to take down a rhinoceros. But the the point I'm driving at is that Nature is an autonomic system designed to survive, but we've influenced it with supersaturation, whether that be electromagnetic technologies, whether that be dumping billions and billions of tons of toxic waste. Uh, I was doing research a few years ago on 
pollution. And I came across a paper that showed that surfers are getting sick all over the world. And I, I was led to a website that they mentioned in the article called Surfers Against Sewage. And it was surfers from all over the world taking pictures of turds and toilet paper floating all over the place, all around the world in all these major surf beaches. And this research paper showed that the number of cities that are actually just dumping raw sewage right into the ocean all over the world is significant. And they said most people are unaware of this, but there is a mountain of shit off the coast of New York that is so big it almost comes out of the water. And New York surfers were talking about how they see shit in the water all the time. What am I saying? I'm saying that we have super saturated to the point that we keep having to up the game, right? Look at Lady Gaga. She she has to keep inventing some more extreme costume to the point where she cuts meat and wraps her body in meat and does these extreme things. And she's not the only one. But at some point where we're... we're Pushing the physiological systems of our body and the autonomic systems of nature, such as, as the weather systems and the circulatory systems and the microorganisms, to such extreme levels that if we don't get clear right now on what it is that we all need to survive and to, to keep the party going, to keep the dance going... There's nothing we can do except exactly what happens to a human being. What happens to a human being that stays that ignorant for that long or that disrespectful to the beauty and the harmony of their own body or that disrespectful to nature itself is you call in a crisis. Sometimes we call it cancer. Sometimes we call it a tumor. Sometimes we call it uh, an undiagnosable disease. Sometimes it's an aneurysm. Sometimes it's a stroke. Sometimes it's a heart attack. But whenever somebody in a family gets a death call from the doctor who says, you got six months to live, what do they do? They drop everything. They gather around. Now meaning and love become important. What am I driving at? I don't know what's coming, but I hate to say it. We either have to wake up immediately and start thinking outside of the box, dancing together, and making intelligent decisions, and not believing the bullshit that we keep seeing on screens without carefully investigating it, or we're going to call ourselves into a collective stroke, heart attack, or something, and whoever gets out the other side of it will be the generation that visited the pain teacher, woke up, got the shock doctrine, got the wake-up call, and from then, things will go along until it all happens again. <laughs> mm, you know, you know, what's very interesting is as you're speaking there, I started thinking, so what, what would the Tao have to say about all of this? The Tao would say it's all perfect, just like it is. Yeah. And, and so how do we, how do we engage with that? And I start noticing that, um, you were mentioning Lady Gaga and you're mentioning the supersaturation and you're mentioning how everything needs to get louder when it's turning up and it's getting louder and louder and louder. Everyone has a physiological, emotional, threshold. psychological threshold. But when you look around and everyone is responding in chaos and fear and anxiety, buggy eyes, and there's someone in the corner just tapping their foot 
and you, you can probably tell they're they're just kind of humming along like mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. and you start noticing there's something about that person that's louder than what's happening around me and i can't put my finger on it because this is obviously very loud it's intense but that speaks louder and contrast so, right and so you know th- what i'm what i'm driving at here is what I've noticed as a filmmaker is, you know, so there's that, uh, you know, Sunday, 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 come over to the big rally, you know, like yelling, right? That's how you get people to like blow back. How do you get people to lean in? Yeah, you got to speak a little softer. Speak a little softer and it causes people to to lean in a little bit more. And I think this is where the nuances really start to come in because when I see a lot of political commentary and I watch, I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts and I hear a lot of people that they're like, you know, well, you know, if this is what the elite are doing, then this is what we need to do. You know, well, let's one up them. Or if this is what's happening here, we need to go in and, and, you know, if they're going to smack us, we're going to go in and punch them. If they're going to punch us, we're going to go in and stab them. And it's always, leveling up it's always bringing you know the noise to a crescendo and Lao Tzu warns against that the Tao Te Ching doesn't he Mm -hmm. yeah you make a weapon I make a bigger weapon yeah I make a bigger weapon then you make a bigger weapon and that goes on until we destroy the planet yeah and so you know so we can you know bring in the audience to some of what you know you and I have been brainstorming these kinds of world issues for I mean you you know for longer than I've been alive, but you know, we, we probably have some, some really beautiful ways that the, those who are listening, who are probably thinking like, what the hell is actually going on in the world? How do I engage with it? How do I, how do I actually not get overwhelmed by it, but actually do something? So, you know, when I said earlier, we can no longer be spectators. That's the one thing that all of this is showing me. We are in the fourth turning and whatever's coming is already here. It's it's not about trying to prevent it from happening. And they said that in the book. Is there any way we can stop the winter crisis from happening? And they said resoundingly, no. But when I said that history, if it doesn't repeat, it surely rhymes. That doesn't mean that what's happening has to be, on the whole, painful it doesn't have to be on the whole violent and aggressive but it will be big it absolutely will be big and let's let it be big but let's aikido the shit out of it and here's how i think we do that <laughs> we hijack the narrative and we and here's why i'm i'm very positive about this because narrative is what has gotten us here we believe about who we are and our purpose and potential in the world because of narrative things that we have allowed ourselves to believe it doesn't matter who the the mrf are out there who told who came up with the story you believed it and you know what no harm no foul we don't need to go out bringing other people to justice when you live into your real potential you render their power over you obsolete anyway. And there's actually a book that I love called The Four Sacred Gifts by Dr. Anita Sanchez. And here, and this is, you know, indigenous wisdom for modern times. Here are the four in four sacred gifts. The power, the, the power to forgive the unforgivable, which is to allow yourself to be set free. 
the power of unity, to understand that you are never alone. The power of healing, which is to reunite reunite with your wholeness. And the power of hope. Where hope exists, love persists. So there is a medicine that the planet really needs. We need healing. More than we need a bloody war to stop what's happening, we need healing because with healing, we come to do what the Buddha said. Right sight leads to right understanding. If you do not see the world correctly, you can't understand it. So right sight leads to right understanding. And then and only then, when those two are, when those two prerequisites are met, can you understand right action. So imagine how many people out there in the world that are so deluded by the political commentary that's like, you see those Democrats over there? Hate them and hate everything they're about. No, no, no. You see those Republicans? Hate them. Hate everything they're about. You know, we have all these reasons to call ourselves so different and hate our differences rather than celebrating our differences. And and they're, they're always this get bigger, get louder. I think the medicine we need the most is very nuanced. It's more listening because how many people that actively went out and supported all these protests last year, they did so because they just don't feel like they are heard or listened to by their government. That's very legitimate. That's what Occupy Wall Street was all about. So they don't feel they're listened to. Well, in a relationship, how far is it going to go? If you're arguing, but you want them to listen first, Usually they want you to listen first and it never works out. You both have legitimate points. And most of the times we're stuck in like, yeah, but I'm right. They did this and that's obviously the worst offense. So I'm right to be upset. They're not right to be upset because they haven't listened to why I'm upset. And it turns into this, you know, again, it's this thing that just grows louder and louder. So to me, to end this long rant, you know, I think we really need to find the nuances of our medicine. And that comes through our art. We need to use our voice and engage with the problems the right way. It's not enough to just engage because many of us will just engage with aggression, frustration. We're so ticked off that there's people that make a 100,000 times more in a single day than I will make in my lifetime, right? Yes, there's a lot of reasons to be upset, but does that really mean that you should allow for that feeling of being upset in your heart? It's kind of like there's there's some of the most disgusting offenses going on out there in the world, but why does that give me an excuse to hold hatred in my heart? Is that healthy for me? Are you puni- no. are you punishing that other person by you holding hate in your heart for them? Maybe a little when we're talking quantum entanglement, but who are you hurting more? Yourself. We need real medicine. And this is why I love what you do because you show, listen, there is a holistic side to being a human. And when you find how to be a real human, it's so radiant. It glows. Everyone around you, they notice. You don't even have to say a damn word. They notice and they want more of your time. They just want to be in your presence because they they feel the love emanating. And then when they feel it and they realize, oh, it's not them. It's not them that's making me feel this way. It's my surrendering to that ever, that all pervasive force of love. If that goes viral, just imagine. This is why I make art. This is why you do what you do, because there are smart people in high places. That's the Hail Mary pass. We think 
that it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. But guess what? I believe that there's really good people in high, very powerful places that simply aren't making the right move because they haven't seen enough of us showing that, hey, I got your back. If you make the right move, if there were a politician to actually make the right move, how many people do you feel like would actually be like, I don't care what party they're in, I'm for that person. I bet you if somebody spoke from the heart, if a politician actually spoke from the heart and was in a position of power, a lot of people would be like, screw the partisan side of it. That person is actually speaking from their heart. They're not reading a script. So I think what we need to do is we need to be the best ourselves. We can't wait for somebody else. We need to use our voice, live from, from love and from harmony, and start at the local level. Start at the community level and let that ripple out, but it has to be now. It does. And, and if you start at the local level, such as with your body and with your family, I will quote Rumi, the greatest teacher is the silent teacher and the greatest lover is the silent lover. And what does he mean? Everyone's watching. When you live in a way that exemplifies harmony and you access your creativity and you allow yourself to be vulnerable, you create space to actually have an interest in other people's opinions instead of just downright dismissing them. When you live in a ritualistic way that embraces and honors, respects, and worships nature and life itself, your vitality and your very presence has a harmonizing effect on anybody that gets near you. And that's what Rumi's saying there. If someone's standing 10 feet from you in the shopping mall and they look and see your vital body and feel your beautiful energy, they instantly are like, what's he buying or what's she buying? <laughs> I'll have and that. Then it happens to me all the time. Ask my wife how many times flight attendants have come up to me out of the blue and go, you must be some kind of health guy or fitness guy. What do you do? I, I noticed the way you're eating. Oh, I see that book you're reading. Everybody's watching. How many, I can't tell you how many times I've written health programs for flight attendants <laughs> who have irritable bowel syndrome or some kind of chronic problem. And they go, do you know anything about, yes, I do. Yeah. Here, here's five things. If you do these, your life is going to change. And it's good that you got this because to see me as a client is a big investment. So just know an angel just came for you. So don't, uh, <laughs> don't miss the opportunity because next time it gets expensive. Right. And some of the things that came to me that I want to share in this regard is that <clears throat> one, you mentioned Buddha, Buddha, Buddha also taught us about a thing called codependent origination. You don't see anybody in the mirror unless you stand in front of the mirror. We, Codependent origination says everything that we judge or value or label is only uh, able to happen because we're involved in it. Yeah. Right? If you call somebody an asshole, then you are co-creating that experience by being involved in it. If you uh, choose to orient your life around love and creativity, then you're co-creating that and you're drawing the principle of co-creativity from the universe and it will support that. You get my point. If we're all in a state of codependent origination, 
then nothing that we believe or see or perceive or label value or judge is happening without our participation. And that, that's what codependent origination is really about. He's saying whatever the circumstances of your life are, don't look somewhere else because you are the source, the origin of that perceptual belief and often the behaviors. And even though you may not be able to change Bill Gates, you can change yourself. Because that's if you don't like what you see in the mirror, try smiling, for example, right? Then it all looks differently. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you're, you're so right about that because we, we have a perception of the outside world and the way that it is. And I know that I mentioned this earlier, but a lot of the times we think our perception of the world is sound. And so when we look at a potential solution. So let's let's say somebody is like, you know, yeah, but you know, how can my changing myself undo that Bill Gates has bought up so much farmland, probably more farmland in the US than than anybody else owns. How can we how does my little action undo that? And here is where the rubber needs to meet the road in legitimately doing the inner work because a lot of people they'll argue away from doing the inner work before even doing it because their intellect won't allow them to see what they perceive as sitting in silent meditation or you know it's really difficult but I'm I'm not going to yell at this person because of what they did I'm going to look at how I may have brought it out you know like those things how does that change the the outer world but the thing is is across the board everyone I've ever worked with who has said, it does not seem to work. It doesn't make sense. How is my little action going to actually ripple out and change their action? It's twofold. For one, those people across the board have not actually done the work. They may be sat still for five minutes and been like, nah, meditation doesn't work. It's like, Nothing happens in five minutes, you know, like nothing happens in five minutes. Most yoga used to be the practice that would allow your body, you would move it so much so you could prepare yourself to sit in silent meditation for hours. It was the preparation for silent meditation, which means it takes a while to get there. So, and, and another thing is, is we think like, what is the problem? Oh, well, I've read enough books to know it's Bill Gates, or I know that it's George Soros, or I know that it's blah, blah, blah. We have all these names of people that we've never met. We've only read about them. A lot of the times we hold hatred for them. Talk about the Trump administration. How many people who've never met the guy who only saw a grand total of maybe 10 minutes of Donald Trump actually saying something and a grand total of 5,000 hours of pundits talking about what he really meant to say, I hate that guy. Now, it doesn't matter whether you like the guy or not, but what I'm saying is we all have perceptions of who the problem is, where the problem lies. And so we're like, how is me sitting in meditation for an hour every night going to change Bill Gates or Donald Trump? And my question would be, why do you think your meditation is there to change that person that you read about? Yes, that's exactly what my point would be. Uh, other, if you're if you're thinking that your meditation is supposed to change somebody else, then you actually don't know what the word meditation means or what it's for. But, you know, something that came up to me when you were talking about how people don't think that as an individual, they can change anything. Well, I have a few choice words in response to that. Let's hear them. 
Ramdas, Gandhi, Steiner, Jung, Yogananda, Jesus Christ, Muhammad, Lao Tzu, and I can keep going. Those individuals changed the way people experience, see, perceive, educate, live by simply being themselves and sharing their love and their wisdom with the world. And if you had to somehow calculate how many people's lives have been enhanced by somebody like Yogananda, look at Gandhi freed the entire country of India almost single-handedly against the most powerful empire in the world. Who in their world would have bet against the empire on a skinny little man, retired lawyer who would use his own power to show the world what's possible and to convince an entire nation to go into a nonviolent protest against the most powerful empire in the world. That's what these people came to teach us. That's why they are great leaders. That's why they're great teachers. And each one of us can look around the world and say, what is it that I love about Deepak Chopra? I'm going to incorporate that. What is it that I love about um, Maryam Williamson and you know any any of them? Ben Stewart, you know. I I I tell people, look, if you want to really learn to surf, study Laird Hamilton and get some Laird Hamilton in you. If you want to learn to ride a skateboard, study Danny Way. You don't study Rudolf Steiner if you want to ride a better skateboard. He might help you from the diet and lifestyle end. You don't study uh, biochemistry to learn to build a house more effectively. So the, the, the point is, is we're all here to show each other what it looks like to live that way. And there's so many examples of people. I mean, imagine, you know, living through what Gandhi lived through or look at Jung having to, you know, figure out how to survive when he predicted that the second world war was coming and knew it was coming. And then when you start studying biographies of people, look at uh, the biography of um, Albert Einstein. It's right on Amazon. It's mind blowing. You look at the shit he had to put up with. You look at the biography of Picasso and all the political pressures that they put him under because his art was so powerful that the, the Germans were trying to coerce him. Everybody was trying to use him to create propaganda messages, none of which he wanted any part of because he didn't want to be participating in that kind of silliness. You know, the, the, there's so many great examples of people that have really fully lived and really invested in their love and done the very best they could do to express their creativity, their genius. And I think if we each ask ourselves, what would love do now? Even if we have to meditate on that for a year and the practices start with next time you criticize yourself, what would love do now? Next time your partner's in a bad mood and you feel like you want to react and say something nasty, what would love do now? When you look out at the world and you see we're killing nature and extinguishing more species than ever in the history of recorded time, and Edward O. Wilson's book, The Future of Life, documents that thoroughly, then you ask, what would love do now? 
before you start spending money on commercially farmed animals and crap food and know those creatures were tortured to death, what would love do now? Well, what love would not support that? Because putting more energy into that, it only maintains it. And I, I think that we're all at a point now where we really have to individuate. We have to become whole unto ourselves. We have got to stop being children, like you said earlier in the podcast, and waiting for somebody to come fix us and bail us out and make our life better. Because so far, every time we've depended on politicians to do that, it's come with a very high interest rate. And and um, when you reach the level of asking for handouts, unfortunately, those handouts are also coming with leverage. But if if we said, hey, if if the best thing I can do is downsize and live in a tent, but still be happy and still celebrate life, that's far better th- than being angry and going and joining a rally and burning people's houses down because you're pissed off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you were mentioning, you mentioned a list of names and um, a story from that book you told me, because I was thinking I do this, I do this as well. There's so many great male leaders and icons. And I was thinking to myself, like, where are some of the female icons I could have added to that list? Vandana Shiva. Well, Vandana Shiva, in her book, Oneness Versus the 1%, she she mentioned, uh, I think it was in chapter one or two, but she was saying like the impact on ecology. And in Rajasthan, India, the, like there were a lot of, um, it was either soldiers or just whatever, people hired to go down and chop down green trees and chop them down, chop them down and, and clearing forests. And so this woman and her daughters went out there and said, no, you're not going to chop down these green trees. These are sacred to us. We're not going to allow you do that to our forest because we don't live if they don't live. This is an extension of our life. And the um, the people chopping down the trees said, move it or, or die. And the women said, I would rather you take my head than take another tree. So they So they removed her head. And then her daughters said, you know what? You're going to take our heads too before you take another tree. So they removed their heads. They removed 320-something heads before that news made it all the way back to the king. And the king said, no more. We can't have this anymore. 320-some-odd people allowed their heads to be severed from their bodies to save trees. That's unthinkable today. Today, people are just like, yeah, chop that tree down, whatever. Like, get it out of my way. These are women, a mom, and her daughters, her young daughters that decided, I'm going to lay down my life because this is right. And guess what? 325 or 20-some-odd people had to lay down their lives to save nature, but it worked. And these, like, man, I wish I could remember the name. Um, I, I'll, I'll go in and research that and I'll po- make a post about it later because those names should never be forgotten and they should be on those lists. Like this is, this is how you really, unfortunately they had to lose their lives for this, but it worked 320 some odd people later. And the King said, no, we cannot do this anymore. So even to this day, Vandana Shiva said, even to this day, that Rajasthan 
uh, forest, I believe, is still protected in the same way. It's under the same, you know, protection. So I think that what we're also moving into is per- perhaps we need to start listening to moms more, you know, like I was just going to say, you want some, you want some women? Ram Dass's mother, Gandhi's mother, Steiner's mother, Jung's mother, Yogananda's mother, Mary, right? Behind, there's an old saying, behind every great man is a better woman pushing him along. And my wife says, no, in front of every great man is a better woman dragging him along. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I could agree. And, And here's what I would say. I had all these aspirations. I was making films before I met my wife. But guess what? She made my life so much better. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that all the magic in my life and the, you know, the expansion of what's happening in my life comes from the mutual love to the point to where when her and I have a discord and some kind of aberrant frequency and and we're, we're not uh, harmonious with one another, it influences every other aspect of my life and my magic is zapped. And then we and had your kids. Exactly. We, I was just going to say, we had children together. They're an amplification of that. So there's something about moms, man. And I, I had a medicine journey last year. And what came to me super clearly, there was two things. The first one was that I'm going to make an album of voices from elders. Think of um, We Are the World. But instead of having like Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, you know, little, you know, little Richard and all these famous people, I'm talking elders, people you'll never hear their name unless they're on an album like this. Their language is dying, their culture is dying, but their voices all together can soar as one, the eagle, the condor, the quetzal, they can all soar together, singing, uh, harmonizing together. So that's one thing that came very, very clearly. The other one was, and I don't have any way to plant this into reality, but the new politics are mothers and and women, but mothers. And I don't know what that means. That's not saying that I think we should just clear all the politics and put women in there, but it came to me and it caused a riddle inside of me. And I'm turning over this. Like, it's not that I don't have a motherly side inside me. You know, I have a fatherly side, probably more dominant, but I know what my mom was to me. So I'm not just saying we need to go for for moms that have had children because that wouldn't make as much sense either. But there's something allegorically about mother. We need to get back to Mother Earth. We need to understand what it means to actually nurture mothers and the way children are born. Mm-mm, it's not it's not hap- happening in a, a healthy way. The way women are giving birth not happening in a healthy way. How quickly could the entire world change? Well. How quickly did new generations happen? And almost everything you're referring to, by the way, how women are giving birth, how women educate their children, discipline their children, feed their children, being told not to breastfeed and use soy-based formulas, dot, dot, all of that can be tracked right back to men, not women. Yeah, the stirrups. Every bit of it. I've researched almost all of it. Kellogg, start studying Kellogg and all his silly shit. Oh, yeah. Laying on your back to have feet and stirrups to have a child. How anti, you know, evolutionary is that? Um, women are better off just squatting. 
and having a baby that way. And that's how my wife did it. We had home births. And my wife had to teach the doctors when we had our twins on New Year's Day 2019. We had twin boys. And there were first five people in the room, you know, just walking in and out. By the end of it, which was only 44 minutes, she had both kids within 44 minutes. Um, Well, she's amazing at it. She had no shots. She was like, anyone with a needle, get the hell away from me. You know, like I, I got this. The only reason I'm here in the hospital is because y'all are making me. And, and by the end of it, there was 20 freaking nurses and doctors in that room, just gawking at her. Like, how is she doing this? And when we were done three hours later, they were like, so you're going to spend the night. And we're like, no, we're not. We're going home. And we went home and it was perfect. And so there's something about like the rite of passage of a mom. And my wife has taught me so much about this. We're even talking about making a documentary called Mother that really just shows you the whole world could change in one generation if they're truly loved, if they're brought in in a supported, held way, you know, like like plants. You don't tug on them to get them out of the ground. You give them what they need and you get the hell out of their way. You give them love. You can sing to them. It helps, right? You give them everything they need. You protect them from the dangers of being, you know, underdeveloped. But children are what children are going to bring the message that they're going to bring. The worst thing we can do is tell them who they're going to be and how they're going to get there. And that's what's been going on way too much for a long time. And you, you know, I won't go into the whole history of the psychology, all that, because it's a five podcast series. But, you know, when it comes to, I agree with you. And and when it comes to the statement, what would love do now, which I have to credit Dr. Cliff Oliver for teaching me that many years ago. And it was just profound. And and I use it as often as possible. And um, Steiner said, human life as we know it depends on two things, bees and trees. And I'm like, okay, are you guys paying attention out there? We're clearing something like, I don't know what the number is. It's a massive number of hectares of, of rainforest every single day, which is the lungs and the medicine chest of the planet. We have serious threats to the extinction of bees worldwide, track right back to electromagnetic pollution and, and the use of pesticides largely. And so these the the trees are the are the lungs and they're houses of life they're like the mothers of life really and the bees are the sex organs along with all the insects yet here we are chopping and and poisoning everybody and so you know i i really think if we really want to get through this together and not have to deal with an ecological crisis that makes the financial issues and all this other stuff we're talking about. Who gives a shit about 5G, 6G robotics, uh, blockchain, all that shit won't matter a damn thing the day we find out that the sex organs of nature have stopped because we'll be able to count the days before the shelves are bone dry of food and, and people are just literally cannibalizing each other to survive. And so we we really... This is what I'm trying to orient people to. We have much bigger issues on the table than sexism and racism and COVID. Those are all smoke screens. And one of the reasons I have so little confidence in the so-called global elite and all their protection of nature plans is because they're the, from everything I can see, they're the ones spinning all these yarns and all these 
stories that are causing all this conflict. And the fact that the government's even allowing this kind of shit to go on, the fact that the government's allowing large corporations to be radically destructive to nature, the fact that they're still allowing us to burn fossil fuels, and they're still allowing large corporations to pollute at dangerously high levels, means that we actually have to reinvent our government. We've got to reinvent our relationship to the earth. We've got to reinvent how we harvest food. We've got to reinvent how we monetize and value money and and make it actually mean something instead of just some imagination game that we play that people manipulate like a chessboard. And so all of these things are big, but, and it's, I can see how a lot of people just go, oh my God, where do you start? But at the same time, you know, a good analogy is like, okay, I, I'll use myself, the house that I'm living in right now. And, and the property we're on, 14 acres. This place was on sale for $5 million five years ago. And we saw it and we drooled over it. We couldn't afford it. Three and a half years later, it was on sale for $3.6 million, And we drooled all about it. We looked at it and said, oh my God, all we can do is pray. And five years ago, I went into meditation and asked my soul to draw a map of our new home so I would recognize it when we were there. Because we were looking at house after house after house, land after land. And the first thing I did is wrote down the prayer. I, I said to Great Spirit, this is the things that I need and we need in order to give as much of our love back to the world as possible. And in return for this, this is what we will do with that property and with that home. And this is what we're going to give back. Then I went into meditation and just let my soul draw the property. Okay. Skip forward three and a half years later, the girls are out looking at houses. They happen to be uh, looking at a house that was like four or five miles from here on the other side of the freeway. And as they were coming back to get on the freeway, they saw a sign, open house, and, and it pointed up the road, and they drove up here, and it turned out to be this house we'd been looking at that we couldn't afford, but it hadn't sold in five years, and now they were going to do an auction. And the long and the short of it is, we got the house and the property that we'd been dreaming about for five years that we never dreamed we would be able to afford because we just pushed our mortgage payment through the roof for $1.9 million. And the land is worth that much. Okay. Now it gets even better. One day, Angie's going through the drawers after we moved in and she finds a map of the property laying in one of the drawers in one of the built-in desks where I now have my vaporizer. And she pulls it out and she looks at it and she walks up to me. She goes, Paul, you've got to see this. She goes, come here. She walks me over to the map I drew, which was poster sized. She holds the map of the property up to my map and it matches like unbelievable. I had even doused out on the map where water would be found. And I put marks indicating potential water source right here. And they had previously had the property electronically surveyed by ge geologists to find water. 
and exactly where they marked water on the map, the three places was right where I put it. I even drew a Tai Chi symbol in the top corner of the property. And when we got here, that's where there's a helicopter pad and it's got a circle and the lines on it. And I saw in my third eye, a Tai Chi symbol. Wow. What does a Tai Chi symbol do? It spins. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is that when you let love be your guide and when your intention is not to own and to control or to look how cool my fucking house is, but how can I give something to the world by being here? How can I make sure my kids live with their feet in the dirt and learn how life works and have some animals and get grounded so they can contribute to the world? I've found every time the world always reciprocates in kind. And we all have the power to manifest. You know, Sri Aurobindo studied all the great healing masters and, and gurus that were considered to be enlightened gurus because he wanted to find out what was it that the real legitimate ones had in common because he, like Yogananda, describes some of the things he had seen in his career and monks describe some of the things Yogananda could do, which most people wouldn't believe. But Sri Aurobindo spent quite some time studying this and he found out that all the legitimate masters had four things in common. Have you ever heard this before? Yeah. Number one, they all drew their power from unconditional love. They did not do their feats of healing or so-called magic themselves. Two, they could all turn a negative into a positive. Three, they created beyond the laws of physics. Four, they created equanimity and harmony wherever they went. Now, people go, wow, that's amazing. How do they do that? I go, you do it all the time. If you choose to, one, get look at your God model. And if it's anything other than unconditional love, then you're not drawing on God. You're drawing on an idea. Two, we can all turn a negative into a positive. What do you think the words, what would love do now, are pointing to? Three, we all create beyond the laws of physics. All you got to do is watch your mind and see how all your fears and negative thoughts and self-criticisms manifest all around you all the time. And whatever you think you magnetize yourself to, thought, word, deed are the three steps of creation. So realize your mind is working beyond the laws of physics because you can jump over the Empire State Building in your head. You can make love to anybody you want to in the head. You can levitate in your head. But when you use the concept of mind as a tool for embodiment, you go beyond the laws of physics to create within the laws of physics. So we're all, we all have the same tools and we can all create equanimity and harmony wherever we go. But first, we got to do it inside of ourselves. And so if there was ever a time to study the great manifestors and people like Sai Baba and the great spiritual teachers, it's now. And Sri Aurobindo did all the hard work for us. So ask yourself, what kind of God is behind it all? Well, if it's the God of unconditional love, 
It means we're always getting our prayers answered and the situation we're in is exactly what we created by working beyond the laws of physics and bringing it into the physical. So if we can make the mess we're in, we can make beauty. We can turn a negative into a positive, but we just have to get clear on what it is that we want collectively together because when we harmonize together and we realize that what we need is nature to be healthy and we need each other's food, we need each other's music, we need each other's poetry, creativity. We need the diversity because it makes life beautiful. Then we celebrate. We don't have race wars and sex wars. We hug each other, we dance, we sing, we share food, and we create, cultivate, grow, fix, party, sleep, dream, and live together. So we draw from unconditional love, we turn negatives to positives, we use our mind to create beyond the laws of physics and bring it into the physical with positive intent. What would love do now and what's the best for everybody involved? And we harmonize ourselves to the truth that we know if shared with other people, even if they kill us, we brought love to them. And if we really love them enough to let our heads get cut off to save the trees, eventually they wake up. And that's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And right now, we have to wake up to what we're doing. And and I think there's, personally, in my life, whenever I've wanted to learn to do something, my first question is, who's already done it and done it well? Because that's who I've got to go talk to. And that's how I spent my whole life learning. And that's, I know you do that too. That's why you go to the jungle and go to the shaman. And, you know, I'm sure you've learned how to make movies from great movie makers. I mean, that's what wise people are for. They're to lead us. And I think right now we have a great opportunity to really evaluate who are the people we're listening to versus who we could and should be listening to. Do you want to listen to Joe Biden or Joe Dispenza? One will teach you to get healthy. The other one will tell you a bunch of policies, mostly based on manipulation, lies, and trickery. Do you want to listen to uh, some medical doctor telling you you need to get poked? Or do you want to listen to uh, Zach Bush, who will tell you what real medicine is and how it cannot be separated from the ecology of the environment and that real medicine starts in your yard? and in your forests. We have all the wisdom available to us. We have billions of people on YouTube. We, we can access everything, but we really need to wake up to the fact that the people with all their PhDs and fancy stuff haven't led us into freedom. They haven't led us into wholeness. Our education system's broken. By their fruits, you shall know them. And that is where we need to use as our compass to find the people to lead us through what we're going through so that we can get out the other side. And I don't see any other way out of it myself, no matter what it is. I feel you. I feel you. And, you know, like everything you said there truly resonates. And what I would say is we, we have everything we need. We have the infrastructure. We have the intelligence. Um, we have the capacity for exactly the way that this seeming checkmate can turn into 
um, a beautiful dance, a beautiful symphony. And I think we're in that perfect position to really acknowledge all the great revolutions in history. Underlying the violence and the things that we would wish to avoid, just, just don't even look at that for right now. People got together and they came together under a common idea. But the work started somewhere. It started somewhere. People began communicating with their community. They got together and they began, in a sense, orienting towards what is, what is the most obvious way forward. Even Let's not even call it a solution. But we're heading off the cliff, all right? And, you know, how do we either turn to not go off the cliff or turn from this caterpillar into a butterfly so going off a cliff won't matter? And this is, I think, exactly where we need to start realizing that we have what we need. We're in this situation. Fear is not going to push us into acknowledging our potential anymore. You know, obviously, like we said, there's a healthy amount of it. But I think the work, I don't think, I know, the work must start now. As as we've been saying, the work must really start now. And so many people who have disempowered themselves into believing it's too late, it's too great, it's too big, it's not. And these are the very same people who haven't actually done the like the actual work but the thing is is it's not too late and don't let go of the handlebars baby right and and so the main thing is is what i've noticed in people is when they check out when they're like it's too big for me i'm just going to keep doing what i've done that's where the insanity sets in like no doing what you've always done is what got you here especially if you're experiencing anxiety and th- the good thing is is to anybody who's already on the right path, you'll know that you're not the other person who needs to change. You simply need to open up and do what the Bodhisattva did. You know, so there's a difference between a Nirvani. A nirvani has found a way to reach bliss and equanimity. Everything around them is blissful, but there's a difference between a Nirvani and a Bodhisattva. A Bodhisattva doesn't live in Nirvana and stay separate from the sufferings of the world. They enter themselves back into the world of suffering so they can bring the medicine where the medicine is needed most into the suffering. And I've noticed this where, you know, like, I'm happy. I I love being at home around my family. And sometimes I need to enter myself into other people's suffering. But I don't look at that as a chore and like, oh, woe is me. Why does this have to be me? I do it intentionally because I know that I'm not here just to make my life happy. I'm not here just to make my family happy. I was given the capacity to serve love to humanity. That's why I use my voice to go out and you use your voice to go out to as many people as would like to listen. And so we do have the power. And when we disempower ourselves, we don't realize that the internet, for all the things we could talk about it that we don't like, the internet is around. And we, if we choose, have access to a large majority of the population. Influencers, one individual, and their voices and their concepts and their ideas and their art can get out to millions, and if they wanted to, billions of people. It doesn't need to be one person being the influencer for everybody, but it's the same thing. Like, you know, oh, well, what is, 
What is just hanging around with my family and making them going to do? Well, don't just look at it that way. You also have the internet. If you can influence a thousand people and in there, you've influenced them to use their voice and their art in a way that awakens others. This is what the real virus should be. The virus, the virality of awakening, because we don't see like, oh, well, man, you know, Pete Evans, you know, he's going to run for Senate in Australia. He's going to save us. Or see that guy over there. He's going to save us. No, you awaken to the fact that you were put here to engage to engage with unconditional love in your sphere of influence. Stop trying to change Bill Gates because if that's not in your sphere of influence, it's not what your job was here to do. Your perspective is skewing you to make you disempowered. So do what you can. Don't not do what you can. That's what everybody seems to do. It's like, nah, this is too big. I'm just going to keep not doing anything. It's not bigger than us. That's what I have to say to the audience. It's not bigger than us. It's actually perfect for us. And we'll come to find that when we start engaging with it, and maybe we can talk a little bit about what that actually looks like, but when we start engaging with it, we realize, ah, this was the lesson that God put forth in front of me. God wanted me to engage and wasn't going to show me the perfect solution until I made that leap of faith. And I know that sounds very woo-woo and too big and too Hollywood, but the bottom line is, is this is mythological and this is inside of us. Our soul inside doesn't want us to fix the outside world. It wants to grow and develop and it knows that we can. And I'll just leave it on this. When my daughter, I actually, you know, I'll, I'll not even put it on my daughter. I saw this little kid trying to do this scissor kick to break a board. And the, the guy, you know, kept saying like, come on, you got to hit it harder and you can do this. And the kids started crying and everybody was like, Danny, Danny, Danny. Yay. And he was crying. And then eventually he, he kicked it. He broke it and everyone broke out in the cheers and they were hugging him and he was crying. And afterwards he was just like, I'm so glad you guys didn't let me quit. I'm so Yay. glad you guys didn't let me quit. And this is why you and I keep doing what we do because I refuse to let the people who feel disempowered quit because it's not over. It's not over. And now is always the perfect and only time to start engaging with what's happening. And you have to do it with unconditional love. And I think it starts by connecting with your tribe. And if it can't happen because we can't gather in large groups, then guess what? The internet's going to have to be it for now until we make it so we can start gathering in groups out there. Because all every revolution started where people started gathering and talking in taverns, in the commons. People started coming together and realizing, you know what? This is messed up. We could do better. So let's just build it. Instead of waiting for somebody else to build it, let's build it. Yes. It's a, it's interesting. Um you know, when I did Tony Robbins Firewalk, you know, long time ago, probably, I don't even remember how many years ago, I was in my early 30s. Tony and I are two weeks apart in age. And uh, he invited me to the Firewalk. I used to be uh, his therapist for a few years uh, to help him with all sorts of different things. But uh, I just intuitively sensed that my first wife was going to get scared because she's a little more apprehensive about, you know, risk taking. And so we had gotten separated because there was a whole preparation thing. And 
And I just felt inside of myself, I got to find her because I have a feeling when she feels the heat coming off those coals, it's going to scare her. And so there was these big long lines, you know, like five or six lines because the fire was spread out sideways. So there was like 2000 people there so that enough people could get across it without it taking 50 hours. And so I, people were making a lot of noise and there was a lot of excitement and fear and there were just buzzing, you know? And so I found her and I snuck up behind her and I whispered in the person's ear, that's my wife. Can I sneak in front of you? Because I want to make sure she doesn't chicken out. And they said, sure, go ahead. So right when she got to the front of the line, I could literally see her shaking and she started walking away. Like she was going to turn and walk away. And I grabbed her from behind and said, you can do this. But she didn't know it was me. There was so much noise. So then she came back and she did it. And then later when I found her, she goes, you know, I almost chickened out, but somebody grabbed me and made me do it. And I started laughing. <laughs> I said, yes, I, I happen to know who that was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, things like that really help people become more confident in themselves. You know, the collective unconscious is very real. Anybody who's been deep enough into a medicine ceremony and engaged the collective unconscious has quite a wild ride in there. I've had my share of them. And, you know, Jung gave us gave us the concept of the collective unconscious, and it's been spoken about by many geniuses, and, and we have ample evidence for that, even with modern technology. But the reason I bring that up is because If the collective unconscious is the collective unconscious, even if you're locked in your apartment building in some crazy ass lockdown, you can create whatever state in yourself that you want to add to the collective. And if you add love to the collective, you shift it toward love. If you add fear and anxiety, you shift it toward fear and anxiety because you're part of it. We're all part of it. So we either bring love and support and willingness and art and song and and uh you know i tell people whatever you love to do genuinely that's your contribution sing truth if you love to sing paint it if you love to paint dance it if you love to dance if you love to massage people find people that are really giving their heart and soul to being part of the change and give them a massage You don't have to do something miserable or terrible. Do what you love to do with the intention of adding beauty and harmony. And if we all, if even 2 million of us do that, the knock on effect of that will cause a shift in the whole game. You're definitely right. And, you know, it's, it's not an intellectual thing. It's so, it's so much deeper. It's not that the intellect is disconnected from it. Um, one thing I was going to say is, you know what I think would be really cool is if we did, Aubrey Marcus always talks about, you know how you can shift everything in the moment? Just take six deep breaths. And then I always thought, why not seven? Cause I like that number. And, um, I'm wondering if I teach 12. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say 11 at first, but then I thought, you know, let's uh, maybe do for the um for your listeners, let's do seven breaths together. And in the quantum right. in the quantum world, we're doing it together and it's for the same intention and let's just set the intention that what you just said, if you shift it towards love, unconditional love, you don't have to be 
you know, the like the the Godhead, Supreme Godhead by the end. But if you're literally directed in that direction and you're walking in that direction, you're doing your part. And you have a lot of listeners. So let's just do seven breaths together. And um and all you gotta focus is on every single breath. You're just shifting from whatever state that you're feeling. You're you're just breathing in and you're letting out everything that doesn't serve you. You're bringing in something new, letting out whatever doesn't serve you and just shifting towards unconditional love. I, I was just going to add, I, I teach a technique called taking out the garbage. So as you exhale, you visualize all the stress and fear and anxiety and insecurity just leaving your body, but you audibly let it out. Ah. So like, <laughs> there's one toss of the garbage that's Ready? amazing yeah We are safe. We are home. We are whole. A whole great Uh, spirit. It is done. It is done. It It is done. done. Love you, buddy. I love you so much, my man. Thank you so much for being exactly who you are. Everybody else is taken. Thank you for being you. (laughs) I had the same problem. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I absolutely couldn't even engage the concept of being somebody else i i totally utterly dig being me Mm. dude i I share the same sentiment i hope all your listeners feel exactly the same we're not here to be anyone else no it's just (sighs) what a work of art we are you know we're each an amazing work of art it took the entire friggin' universe to create every one of us which means we are all, all of it, brought to a nexus point called I. And the I is the only way God can experience love because without it, there would no, be no subject-object relationship. There would be no I-thou. So when we realize that the whole universe 
is living and looking through our eyes and being one with us, we're never alone. And each of us is born of that same divine mother. And now is the time to party, get some energy, center ourselves and say, let's clean up the garden, clean up the yard and turn every opportunity into an opportunity to add something of harmony, beauty, and love to the collective. And even if it all goes to hell in a handbasket, we can leave knowing we left the world a little better than how we found it. And, you know, as Jesus says in the Bible, a a rich man can no sooner get to heaven than a camel can get through the eye of a needle, which means all that leaves with you is what you've become. We're all going to die anyhow. So I say we've got ample reason. We've just spent two hours and 33 minutes discussing what's going on in the world. And if that doesn't give you reason to say, hey, let me just leave it a little bit better and add some beauty to it, that's all you can do. And why not die knowing that you left the place a little nicer than how you found it? That's my choice. Yeah, yeah. Dance and sing. If we did that a little bit more, if the world's not letting you speak, sing it. You know, if you feel too hemmed in and you can't move, you got to dance. It really is. You're dancing off those shackles and you're singing off the monotony that just, you know, drab, dry intellectual speaking is. We are artistic beings. And um, man, I really appreciate what you do. I really do. I have to, I have to honor you. I appreciate all that you do as well. I, uh, I remember the first time I got a hold of you, it was so exciting for me because <laughs> I just, I remember watching your various films and saying, whoever the hell this guy is, I got to meet him because man, he's bang on and he's putting a lot of great wisdom out in the world. So, you know, this, what we're talking about and celebrating together is what we can all do, right? No, and it doesn't have to be a great, huge thing. It can be, picking up a little bit of garbage, helping somebody that needs a little help, flushing the toilet one or two times less and saving a little water. You know, every act of kindness is an act of kindness. And when you get enough people engaging acts of kindness, then the world simply becomes a kinder place. And that's what Houston Smith said. His last interview before he died. I saw that one. Remember when someone said, what's your parting message? He said, just be a little kinder, a little kinder to yourself, a little kinder to each other, and a little kinder to the world, right? Uh, if, if that was Houston Smith's final message after almost 100 years of amazing contributions to humanity, then I bow down to the wisdom of Houston Smith and say, no matter what's going on, let's just be a little kinder to each other. And, and that's what it means to have a teacher. Cause if you can't listen to the wisest people among you, then you have another problem. Yeah. And transcend those circumstances and realize that, you know, you could be a burger flipper, but you could be the best damn burger flipper. There could be somebody over there griping about their life, griping about their job. And then the one right next to them is dancing, has so much grace, so much beauty, and they're bringing love to it. And guess what? Circumstance looks the same, but one is in love and the other one is not. You know, my last thing before I let you go, we 
have a gardener and a, uh, he's a kind of a ranch take caretaker. He takes care of our property and, you know, this guy can do everything from cement work to chainsaws to gardening to, to, uh, metal work. I mean, the guy's just amazing. He can hardly speak a stitch of English. I don't think he even can write. He's probably got very little to no school. But this guy is one of the most truly enlightened human beings I've ever met. He's always got a smile. He works hard every day. You know, he, uh, he, he I just, I, I marvel at this guy. He's, he's just such a beautiful soul. And so it's not about having a PhD or being a wise guy. It's just about, you know, there's a perfect example. Every day I get to see this guy, I feel so happy. He helped me build my water charger. So for three months, him and I worked hard together every chance we got to build this water charger. And getting to go work with Freddie every day, it was just like, wow, I get to go hang out with Father Nature, man. And I just think, if all of us could just be a little more like Freddie every day, how amazing the world would be. Aho. Aho. I know those beautiful people. All of you that are listening, please send Freddie some love. Unfortunately, we had a tree come down and it hit. It fell on top of the fence around my rock stacking area, which used to be an Olympic sized volleyball court. And the tree was so heavy, it bowed the whole fence and the metal rods were bending. And when he, touched the saw to it the tree was under so much pressure because the metal fence snapped back kicked the chainsaw up and broke his left wrist and snapped his ulna in an instant and uh he's never had an accident like that in his whole life and the poor guy was just so calm and brave and he straightened his own bones out and came back and sat in our front door after you ring the bell he says i think i broke my wrist i need some help but he but he was just so amazing so i've been sending healing energy his way so anybody that wants to add some love to a loving man just open your heart to freddie and focus on the guy that helps paul penny and angie keep the rainbow alive and beautiful and even a moment of love will help his bones heal so I just wanted to share Freddie because he's such evidence that there's a Buddha <laughs> and, and walking around. And sometimes you find him in the places you least expect. <laughs> yes, you do. With a shovel and a chainsaw. In his <laughs> <laughs> That's my kind of Buddha. Yeah. Love you, buddy. Give a hug to your wife and kids for us. And uh, thanks for sharing. I had a great time with you. And I hope all of you, Get a hold of the book, The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe, and pay close attention to the fact that uh, we don't need a war. We just need a revolution, and Ben and I did our best to share what that can look like. Yeah, go to uh, benjosephstewart.com and uh, check out my body work and email me if you got any questions. Much love to all of you listeners. I feel all of you. Yes, yeah, so that's is that the primary refor- resource? Uh, benjosephstewart.com yeah benjosephstewart.com I have deeper dive section there you can get a hold of all my content Um, man we didn't even talk about DMT quest Um, well they can they (laughs) can look for it he's got a new film out 
Yeah, and it's on YouTube too, right? It's on YouTube, but it's also on the on the homepage of benjosephstewart.com. Just scroll down. You'll see a film that's all about endogenous DMT and human potential. And um, yeah, yeah, just uh, hit me up if you guys have any questions. But I, I just really appreciate you um, reintroducing me to your audience, Paul. Um, yeah, oh, my we, pleasure. We've got a lot more good work to do on this planet. I yeah, like. I was waiting to get you back, so it all just aligned up and... I was excited to hear your podcast with Kyle Kingsbury, who we both love very much. I love Kyle tremendously. Yep. He's amazing. And I'm excited he's going to be here next week for my mandala workshop. We're doing the Who Am I mandala workshop. That's amazing. Tell him I said hi. Yes. Thank you to all my sponsors for your great, amazing support, your high values, your sustainable practices. And thank you to all of you for anything you buy from the sponsors. It supports the planet. It feeds you high quality uh, food and products and it, a little trickle comes to me so I can keep sharing my love with you and feeding the family. So I thank all of you for your listenership. Thanks for sharing the podcast and uh, let's all do this together. Lots of love, Ben. Peace. See you, bud. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Ben Stewart. On Ben's website, you can find links to all his films, music, and documentaries at benjosephstewart.com. That's B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H-S-T-E-W-A-R-T.com. Or connect with him via Patreon at patreon.com forward slash benjosephstewart. On Twitter at Ben Joseph Stew or on Instagram at Ben Joseph Stewart. Follow Paul on Instagram at Paul.check, on Twitter at PaulCheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living 4D with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to check videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, Chekiva.com. Remember, you can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>